Digital Gonzo, episode 94, dated Thursday the 9th of August 2012, The Making of Batman Breakdown. Part 1 of 2. Hello, my name is Alfred Pennyworth, and I'd like to make a withdrawal. Everybody down on the ground! Bruce, I can't even begin to imagine how you feel right now. Give me the gun. Come on, son. But you've got to talk to us. Why are you out here tonight? I'm fine. No, you're not. Batman, look what you're doing. Look what you nearly did. Look at me. Look at me! Chemical, you goddamn bottom-feeding son of a bitch. You think that just because you've got the power to take something, that you have the right to. And when I take that power away, what do you learn? What do you learn? I, I give up already! I made mistakes. Batman can't afford to make those anymore. Yes, he can. Look, if you're not going to talk about this to me, you can talk to someone professional. Dr. Jennifer Whitman. Alfred and I handpicked her for you. Dr. Whitman. I've woken up with bullets flying through my tent. I can handle this. I don't kill. Ever. But I've wanted to kill them. Every night. What are your reasons? One of these days, Two-Face, Zaz, Joker. Right now, I can't trust myself not to. You're quitting? I haven't been okay in a long time. So you're handing over. We've all got friends who were succeeded. Hal, Ollie, Barry. So who's going to take over the cape and cowl if we skip town? I want to call him my son. I know you, Bruce. This has hit you hard. do this anymore. This is going to be an exploration into the production process of my first full-length audio drama, Batman Breakdown. It's filled with spoilers from the very beginning, so of course, go listen to that one first. Joining me in the Batcave for an inside look at what might be the best creative project I've ever put together, I have Neil Taylor of Gameburst, KDS 2.0, and Desert Island Gonzo, a.k.a. Nightwing, and Thief Number 3. The Bat! <laughs> Sharon Shaw of Gonzo Planet, a.k.a. Dr. Jennifer Whitman, also known as Cop Number 1, and of course, Frightened Bank Patron. Hello. Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits, presented by Penny Arcade, a.k.a. Robin. Hello. And in a little while I'll be talking with David Hartrick, who was the key figure assisting me with story continuity and development during production. We have a lot of ground to cover since this is a surprisingly dense and textured piece, if I do say so myself. And I'm going to have to try to distance myself somewhat from my own work for the purposes of analysis, something I've never had to actually do on this podcast.
We'll start with how I first thought of the story, because I actually thought of this one years ago. I think I first got the idea after reading Identity Crisis, so it would have been way back, like 2005, 2006. And it it was centered around the death of a relatively unknown to the outside world, but key character in the DC universe. And I thought to myself, what could actually happen to Bruce if Alfred died? Because I wanted to start off a story where Bruce had to seek therapy and it was it would have to be something which would actually make him address the fact that he was starting to crack and and i figured alfred dying would be the perfect catalyst for that he's definitely been there since the point where thomas and martha wayne were killed and that also dates back perfectly to the point where bruce's mind started to crack even as a child and that's kind of what i wanted to focus on for the actual story because i wanted to make it very much about bruce and this is very much inspired by the nolan films and taking a deeper look at, at, at what this has actually done to Bruce over the years. So, yeah, that was the spark of the idea. And I never quite knew what I was going to do with it. Maybe I could make it into a comic book. Maybe I could try to turn it into a script or something. What actually happened to kickstart me into thinking about doing this properly was when I did, we did the Hush review episode where we talked about the uh, graphic novel Hush. Did you start reading that because of the uh, show we did, Dan? I did. I heard you mention it before. I can't remember if it was an old Digital Cowboys episode or what that right. brought up a lot of uh, kind of like the best Batman comics to uh, to go to and try. But yeah, that did uh, convince me to sit down and read it beginning to end. Um, it's when we did that one, and I was just going to do like a, a quick reading on the beginning and just to sort of give people an idea of how the actual story would flow. And then I got a bit theatrical on it, and I'm going to play that clip now. But this is the beginning of Hush in the Batman style. Gotham City Shipyard, almost midnight. I have one minute and 13 seconds left. After that, no time to pick the lock. The acid is faster, but unpredictable. Had to risk it. If I don't find the hostage before he gets back. The FBI and DEO cut the power. That will either make my job harder or easier. I'll know in the next few seconds. Nails Nathan, former CIA op. Right-handed. The poison in the tips of my batarangs will go to work in his hand, his arm, and then his head. Tommy Harper, gunrunner for the IRA. He has a metal plate in his skull which makes him susceptible to vertigo if it's hit with anything magnetic. Carlos Valdez, Chilean mercenary. He likes to fight in close because of his size. Spider Hancock, Gotham City muscle. I broke two of his ribs three nights ago. They won't heal soon. I have to make it clear to Hancock that I don't have time for a long discussion. Where is the boy? I swear I don't know! You're lying! Fear is an excellent motivator. Someone spent a lot of money assembling this crew. Batman! Stay down on the floor and cover your ears. But as Bruce Wayne will attest, you have to spend money to make money. I'm gonna get you out of here. Seven seconds left. The boy is trembling. Not much older than I was when he's probably just as terrified of me as of what's happening. It makes me think about Clark and how he'd handle the situation. Not just the bending steel and flying out. Clark could smile, that Boy Scout thing, and then say something homespun to put the boy at ease. But the boy doesn't have Clark, he has me. And in Gotham City, it's better that way. You shouldn't have come here! This doesn't involve you! 
a lot of people responded very well to that, and I enjoyed making it so much that I thought, right, okay, this idea I had ages ago, let me start taking a real look at it. And it, it was really quick between then and actual release. I mean, what, Hush was... Hush was episode 86 of Digital Gonzo, and this was episode 90, so it was less than a month production time. That's not bad, really. That was it. When, when I start, Okay, right, spoiler warning, folks, if you haven't actually listened to this yet, really don't listen to the making of any longer until you've actually heard it. But the notion of actually killing Batman... No, actually, not even killing Batman. The notion of actually killing Bruce hadn't really been the point of this. And it isn't really the point of it. The point of it is Bruce actually confronting his issues. The idea being, if Bruce ever really confronted his issues, he couldn't carry on being Batman. Because it's, it's his twisted insanity that actually keeps, keeps him moving on this. You can't have a well-adjusted Batman. So, yeah, I, I sat down and I, and I hammered out the script. It was a simple case of, right, okay, if Bruce was going to really confront all of this and stop being Batman, who would he talk to and in what order and how would he work all of this stuff out? And I literally got it down to a few conversations, really, really key ones, and just there was no fat. There was nothing that really didn't need to be in there. I only added Catwoman at the last minute because I thought... There's got to be some kind of light at the end of the tunnel for him. He's got to have someone. Because otherwise, if there's no sense of sharing this possible future, no, no one else for him to actually share it with, you won't really buy that he's actually going to stop being Batman. You think he'll be off on his own, he'll be thinking about it, he's not going to come back. But if he's tied to another person, he'll actually maybe commit to the notion of stopping being Batman. And with Alfred gone, you don't really want to see him go off and be alone somewhere for the rest of his life? No. Um, and, oh, here's another very important thing. I hadn't seen and knew nothing about The Dark Knight Rises up to a week after I'd actually released this thing. So any comparisons with The Dark Knight Rises, there's too many odd similarities in there. With me right now is David Hartrick of the wildly popular In Bed with Maradona and 500 Reasons to Love Football websites. Hello, David. Hello, mate. And you also did the Hush and Dark Knight Returns articles for Gonzo Planet. Yes, I did, yeah. Stating how much I loved Hush and how much I hated the Dark Knight Returns. Controversial. Thank you very much for those. So, I mean, what actually happened between us was that um, just before I put out the Hush show, you sent me an article. What you sent me, what is now the Hush article. Was it just that you were enjoying the Batman podcast so far, or what? Yeah, I... Basically, to, to give a bit of background, I'm a bit of a uber Batman fan, um, a little bit obsessive, as I'm sure we'll come on to at some point. Um, and I was just, yeah, really enjoying it, knew you were going to do Hush Next, and I had a, a series of pieces that I'd written for a, a website that I had an almighty falling out with. Yeah, so I had a, a, a series of articles, and I knew I had the piece on, on Hush in there, and it's just such a... I, I remember framing it as uh, around the idea of a love letter, which is still what I, I maintain Hush is. You know, it's, it's, it's a love letter to that world, and... Uh, I just I, I really enjoyed the reviews that you were doing and thought, yeah, I'll send it over for you to have a read. I earmarked you because of the whole hush, the mini audio drama I put at the beginning of that. 
I thought to myself, right, if I'm going to start up with this and do a proper audio drama, I'm going to need someone to give me the continuity because I haven't been reading Batman habitually since early 2000s and I'm going to need to make sure that what I write makes sense and that is also true to the characters. So I retained you for that capacity. Yeah. Uh, the wife says that Batman is my heroine because I just can't give it up. You know, and I, I anything Bat-related, I just... I, I'm basically it's it's taken over our lives, and at my my day job is basically as a football writer. But when I retreat away from football, it's always into that world. And I love the whole scope of comics. You know, I I read I, I absorb comics like you wouldn't believe. But I always come back to that world and it is you know I'll make no bones about it. It's basically an obsession. The advantage of having you on the team is that you know about Batman. It's more than just that you are familiar with the character, it's that you know what has been done before, and so I, I could check everything with you, and if yeah. I was repeating a scenario that has actually already been in the comic, then you could go, ah, hold on, that was in War for the Cow. You've got to think about it. If Batman's been going for that very that long now, it's very, very difficult to reinvent the wheel. Mm. The, 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 it's not that you can't tell good stories anymore, it's just that brilliantly original ideas stand out like a beacon because you can't I mean how many times can Batman find you know fight the Joker and put him back in Arkham Asylum yeah. you, you have to find new ways new scenarios new stories and recently the, the whole thing with DC with the new 52 and what have you as, as it's been a bit of a realisation that you know this, this world you've, it, it's got to sort of I don't know it's, it's got to evolve a bit because you just have the same, essentially the same story. Bad guy comes to Gotham, tries to take Batman down. Batman takes bad guy down. You know, they needed to do something about that for a new generation. And you've got this monster at, at Marvel through the, the movies that is just growing and growing. So they've had to react to that. Comic fans can be a really myopic bunch that, you know, obsess about continuity, obsess about issue numbers. And what DC have done, which is very, very brave, is they've basically turned around and said none of that matters anymore. But what you have to realise is that opens the world up more. And mm. stories like this one we've put together, you, you can actually envision a future now where this would happen, where this story would sit and exist as an actual thing, whereas before it's such a, such a shut-off bracketed up world mm. you know that nobody else is allowed into so it was a really interesting idea to me right from the off really and besides providing a bit of continuity i wanted to see if i could sort of help you know develop the story with you more than anything what you absolutely did a lot of the huge aspects and elements of the end of the story specifically uh, you, you you kept off the, the the beginning and all the way through you would kind of trust me with that but you were like right this has to end in a specific way yeah. And so yeah. I was all ears on that one. It's like, right, okay, what you got? It's always important with a conclusion. It has to, there has to be certain threads there. And the way we went with it, I mean, we'll, we'll get to it eventually, but the, the way we went with it and the way I saw it was I wanted a scenario that I could sit down and I, there wouldn't be any nagging questions for me or there wouldn't be, well, I'm not sure this would actually happen. I wanted something solid with a through line you know, from continuity to this point we would created, mm. that it was indisputable, basically. And I, I, touch wood, I think we actually achieved that. No one's actually said that wouldn't happen yet. So no. I think 
Touch wood. Either that or we just haven't hit enough Batman fans yet. <laughs> what were your... Uh, I'm trying to think of what the, the main ideas that you sort of steered me towards or, in fact, pretty much insisted on were. You you said, right, Jason needs to be at the end here when when Bruce yeah. was, was um, up against the Joker. Yeah. Uh, he, he, uh, he wasn't originally going to be in Wayne Manor. It was going to be that Jason was going to find out about Batman's death by the Joker, and that was going to send him over the edge, and that he was going to cut his face up and then become the next Joker. But you put that down to the fact that if he was there, then that would be the crucible of his new character. Yeah. For the actual turn to come, he needed two sources of motivation. The first is, through the, the way he's been written as the Red Hood since, he, he still he can't give up completely on the idea of Bruce being some sort of mentor or some mm. sort of far figure and Bruce will not give up on him so the first driving motivation is seeing Bruce die the second motivation would be the fact that he will never ever get his true revenge against the Joker anymore yeah you know what there's that fantastic line in Return of the Hood I don't know what cloud your judgment worse your guilt or your antiquated sense of morality. Bruce, I forgive you for not saving me. But why? Why on God's earth is he still alive? And that is always, that's, that's one of my favourite panels in any Batman story ever. To take both away from him, so to take his ultimate revenge and to take away Bruce... It's the whole twist of his mind. It's like letting go of, you know, the final threads that are, are holding him together almost. Mm. And then he's just got to sort of give himself over to this new personality. There's there's a lot of... Grant Morrison writes the Joker brilliantly because he goes into the psychosis of the Joker and he, he started right back with Serious House on Serious Earth where mm. he starts talking about the Joker being some sort of super personality where he just... He acts on impulse all the time, and maybe that's the way all of society is going to go. And then in the RIPR, he sort of expands on this further, and he has this joke, the Joker as one of the reasons he hasn't got a definite backstory and a defined relationships with people is because he keeps evolving. Every so often, his, he undergoes almost like a sort of chrysalis change where he just becomes a completely new joker you know a new and mm -hmm. it's it's a way to tie up the sort of continuity over previous years so he, he started as the clown prince of crime and we've now got this psychotic rage-filled joker and it's it's almost jason taking over is almost like an evolution of that idea it's yeah. almost like this is this is the almost the next if you don't think about the joker as a single person but as an idea it's following that through yeah, so he has become the same legend as Batman himself. Yeah, he's he's become a symbol. Joker becomes the ultimate symbol of chaos. You know, in effect, no matter who wears the face, it's the constant evolution and revolution of the Joker coming back to elements of his past, but also creating new, psychotic, terrifying future visions of himself as well, you know? That actually related back to Batman Beyond Return of the Joker where this was an idea that started with him warping Tim yeah. and uh, turning him into a miniature Joker. So I thought that would be a great way to sort of transpose that aspect onto Jason. Yeah. Uh, even though it's actually not the Joker doing it himself, he's just what he's done to Jason over the years was enough. Yeah, really struck a chord with me because you've got, at the end of the day, 
Batman and Joker are two sides of the same coin. It's a cliche mm. to say it, but they really are. And I was always keen on the fact that any end of Bruce Wayne should also be the end of a cycle, in effect, of the Joker. Yeah. And to tie the two together, for me, was something that, that had to be done. Going back to The Dark Knight Returns, which we all know my feelings on. <laughs> but again, Miller knows that he's, in effect, writing almost an end of Batman, or an era of Batman. So he has to end the Joker. So then when he goes back to it in the woeful sequel... Dark Knight Strikes Back. back. If there was anything good about Dark Knight Returns, and there are several aspects, there is nothing good no. about Strikes Back. And he has to re... Friggin' rollerblades again. Yeah. <laughs> what? He is- what? He has to recreate the Joker, though, as a, a clone of Dick Grayson. And it's just... Because you can't have one without the other, you know. You so with now with breakdown, you've got Tim, Jason, and Dick who've all become the new evolution of the Joker. Yeah. Nice. The Joker in any Batman story that features him is always as important and as central a figure as Batman, because they are. They again, it's a huge cliche to say it, but genuinely, the one almost can't exist without the other. You know. Mm. So, the other side of the equation, which is one of my favourite lines. Yeah. And you originally, I think you took that one out, didn't you, in your second draft? And I was like, no, put it back. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Yeah. Oh, it was your idea as well to promote Tim and not Dick. Yeah. Which is, is again, going back to comics and continuity, there was there was a time after the uh, Night 4 arc, Bane takes Batman's back. Referenced in Breakdown. Yeah. Bruce Wayne goes away puts himself back together again, takes um, Jean-Paul Valley down, who's been wearing this twisted version of the bat suit, basically, somewhere between the bat and Azrael. And then he, he goes away because he needs to sort of put his life back together. So Dick takes on the, the bat suit for six months or so. And the whole theme throughout is that he never feels right in it. He's not sure this is what he wants for his future. Mm. And he struggles with it. But then bringing it right back up to the modern day, we've just had an arc now, Batman R.I.P., where Batman has gone, Bruce Wayne has gone. And Dick is almost forced into taking on the cow because Gotham is, is basically just going to hell. Uh, is this uh, just after Battle for the Cow? Yes, yeah. yeah. In which Bruce... Jason Todd, this is actually te- would, would have taken place if the continuity had carried on forwards, Jason Todd vies for the cow anyway yeah. and has yeah. to fight with Dick to actually to maintain that. It's really, the, the thing is, Jason puts the cow on, Harvey Dent puts it on at one point, uh, Tim puts it on at one point because he realises Gotham needs a Batman. I'm assuming the Harvey Dent looks kind of like Prince did in the Bat Dance. Yeah, worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> worse. Again, it's right at the very, very end, finally, Dick says, right, okay, I'm going to do it. He then becomes Batman, but he becomes a very, he makes a point of becoming a very different Batman. Mm-hmm. So his his methods are different. He um, He's more, he's a much more visual Batman. He's on CCTV gets himself caught on CCTV a lot because he wants Gotham to realise that he's back and he's a presence. Mm. He's a lot more acrobatic. He doesn't bother with the Batcave. He he has a penthouse in the centre of of Gotham. Rather like Dark Knight. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, in this period, there's some brilliant stories written. Uh, The the 
the Black Mirror series is with Dick Grayson as Batman. It's oh, right. So Black Mirror, you were yeah. with me just now, it actually is Dick. Okay. Absolutely brilliant. But throughout, there's always this thread of he's never completely comfortable yeah. as Batman. And it's something he's, he's had to have his arm twisted into. Whereas the flip side of that, Tim Drake is approaching Batman for detective skills. You know, as a young lad, he, found, he worked out Bruce Wayne as Batman. He's then continued to learn from Batman. He's, tech, uh, he's a computer genius, basically. He's up there with Oracle um, in terms of his, his tracking and hacking skills. Hence her line about Tim being smart, which was yours. Yeah. And the, the thing is, with Tim, the, the physicality of Batman is almost the very last element. Yeah, Batman needs to fight and, you know... I hate Batman stories which basically revolve around him just kicking the shit out of a load of people because before he gets to that point, he's at the end of the day, he's billed as the world's greatest detective. Mm. And it's a, a, any decent Batman story, a decent Batman arc, you will find heavily focuses on the detective work. Mm. I look at something like the Long, Long Halloween, something like that. Yeah. So Tim, for me, is a much more natural fit there's a willingness with Tim. He understands Batman as more than Bruce Wayne. He understands the power of a symbol. And he went through all the stuff with, with Jean-Paul Valley taking over the Batsuit and going crazy. He mm. understands what it's like when the wrong man is in the Batsuit. So to me, it always seems more logical that, that you know, the, the, the full evolution of Batman is going to end with Tim Drake taking that on. Yeah. And Dick Grayson... Dick Grayson's character when he was Robin was, was a bit pathetic, as we all know, you know, holy rusted metal Batman and all that shit. Mainly down to the writing. But yeah. yeah, mainly down to the writing, but as soon as he became Nightwing, all the best Dick Grayson stories are with mm. Nightwing. And I so think he's at his strongest as Nightwing, not Batman. Yeah, and I think there's, there's a reason for that. And as I said, don't get me wrong, the recent stuff with Dick Grayson's Batman, some of it has been just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But there is a theme that it's, it's something that's been thrust upon him rather yeah. than something he wanted to do, whereas Tim would understand the duty, he would understand the, the, the power that comes with it and the need for it. So it almost just seemed a more natural fit to me. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, it didn't take me much at all. I mean, uh, Arkham City actually got, went some way to convincing me on that as well because Batman, A, treats Tim like crap. Yeah. And for no apparent reason um, but B, Tim seems more than capable of being Batman if you've actually played Harley Quinn's Revenge he's, yeah. he's, a, he's a good detective he's a good fighter and, and it's, it's like right he is, you know, he's young, he'll learn but this notion that there'd be a fresh Batman that you could actually sort of you know, go along in the journey through, you know, to really earn this cowl even though he gets it way before he's ready yeah, it's, it's exciting, it's interesting yeah and that, that's exactly it the thing about Tim, more than anything else, is he is fiercely intelligent. Yeah. And the thing that gets overlooked with, with Bruce so, much, so often is his mind. Yeah. You know, and people focus on the, the fact he dresses up as a great big bat and flies into the night and not the, the actual thought process behind it, the detective yeah. work, the intelligence in creating this world, keeping the persona of Bruce Wayne going, keeping you know Wayne Foundation going and... and making sure he keeps hold of his fortune ultimately and Tim is just a much more Dick is an acrobat and he's a fighter you know if you were going into a fight with against 25 goons in the middle of Gotham 
dick is the one you want on your on your side, you know, flipping all over the place, taking mm. them one by one. But if you're up against a real sick psychotic killer who's leaving you a series of clues, or even worse than that, leaving absolutely nothing, mm. and you want Tim by your side every single time. And fortunately, Tim does have Dick on his side as well, yeah. on the new Team Bat. Detective-wise, I realised when I got to the end that um, I hadn't given Batman anything detective to do. So I re-edited the scene when he thinks about the upbringing of the various Robins into a really quick-fire thought process so that you'd actually get an insight into his Sherlock Holmes-style mind of, boom, Tim was like this, boom, Dick was like this, boom, Jason was like this. And it's, it was just kind of a way of, of showing... Okay, you know, he's been talking about his feelings and all of his past and everything like that, but that is the one point when he suddenly becomes Batman, unaffected by everything that's gone on around him, and he suddenly becomes the world's greatest detective, and he works it out. He's working out the emotional motivations of people he knows through detective work. Yeah. Which I thought was nice. Yeah, and I, I think it really works. It, the other thing I think that comes across in that is that he... It, he sort of he catches himself off guard when he thinks about emotional complications and uh, uh, emotional consequences, mm. and I think that really comes across, and I think that really works. I am somewhat worried that this is going to be labelled the Pussy Batman because he <laughs> he does he's more emo than any Batman I've ever actually read. I wanted to include enough of a feeling of this savage, barely restrained beast when he he nearly kills that guy at the beginning that he's many different things in this. Yeah, yeah, and that. But the thing is, I think if you're going to write any story like this, where where you're going to have Bruce Wayne give up the position voluntarily, mm. there's no other way you can do it unless making him a bit emo, like you say, because he's going to have to start thinking about the wider consequences of his of his, his life, the wider circle of his alleged family, you know, the Bat family. You couldn't imagine this really happening to the extremely cold Grant Morrison-style Batman, the one no. who's like just super detective, doesn't allow any emotion in. No, exactly. And but I think that's that's the thing. Different writers approach Batman in, in different ways. If you don't put some of yourself in there, then why bother doing it? Yeah. You know, because all you, you're writing somebody else's cipher for the character. So I. I I understand what you're saying, but, I, you know, I wouldn't worry about it, trust me. <laughs> okay, I won't. Um, and last thing, I suppose, a sequel for this one is brewing. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about it already. So, um, do you want to help me make that at some point? Yeah. Like, I could run it by you? <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I really enjoyed the whole experience, and it was... As I said, it's a it's a bit of an obsession for me. When you ask me about um, Bruce giving Barbara something, and I yeah. always thought about the breed of roses that Alfred grows, I realised that this was definitely an obsession rather than just a, a pastime. Well, I picked the right man for the job. So I, yeah, definitely, mate. I'm I'm in. I'm in. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much, David Hartrick. And uh, if we want to find out more about your work, and well, specifically if you guys out there like football, yeah. and we never talk about this on Gonzo, but if you do, In Bed with Maradona is one yeah. website. Just to, just to clarify, though, I mean, I know I know most people listening to this won't be into football, but In Bed with Maradona... Some of them might be. Yeah, in Bed with Maradona is a website that... what. What we do is we let people write about what they want to write about, so there's no sort of transfer stories or anything like that. 
it's it's a whole collection of football art and it basically just head over there it's a whole jumble of stuff and you'll understand what I mean when I get there if you're super interested in football then go and buy my book from www.ockeybooks.co.uk um, that's called 50 Teams That Mattered but uh, yeah it's not, not everybody's thing but that's the day job that's what pays the bills so do you dream of Batman playing football? essentially yeah that's, that's about, 90, about 96% of my day <laughs> against a team of jokers yeah. okay thank you very very much David Hartwick for coming on no problem whatsoever do you feel that vigilantism is actually going to help in the long run I think it will arise in an area where something has gone wrong I mean in Gotham City in the United States they call up a specialist vigilante agent when they're in times of real trouble by projecting a huge luminous emergency bat sign into the sky and he comes rushing in and so far that has worked. Is that something that should be encouraged? I'd have to see it. I, I, well, it, it looks good. It would have to be a very uh, individual with, with great magnetism. I think, that's that what, I think that's what it is. Yeah, I it's think his special they're sign. One off, they're one-offs of that sort of thing. And it's very nice in school mastering when you have people who one-offs who can actually do it in a way that nobody else can do it. But, they, but don't try and get other people doing it. But when he, you know, Bruce Wayne goes, then it's, it's yeah. all going to collapse. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, done, it's happened throughout history. The first words in the show are sassy from the most popular girls on the internet. How can I help you, sir? Now, for the longest time, I was just going to include the beginning of the Out of Sight soundtrack, which sounds like this. How can I help you, sir? How can I help you, sir? But I thought that would take people out of it so much. If, they, if they're familiar with Out of Sight, they'll, immediate, they'll spend the rest of the show thinking, why was that woman from Out of Sight in this? So I just, I got a lady to do it in exactly the same way. And the recording technique, uh, a lot of people uh, have been asking, you know, did I get together with the same people in the same room? Which would have been really difficult, right, Dan? Yes, it would. And expensive. <laughs> Someone actually suggested I get myself a recording studio, which wouldn't have helped. Because, Ooh. again, this, almost all of these were done over Skype. Now, we didn't actually use a Skype recorder. It was, it was recorded locally, and then they'd send in their uh, isolated side of that particular conversation. What literally happened was people would send me their lines, and I would slot them together. Now, what I really wanted was to make it like the way they recorded the Batman the Animated Series, where it was like an audio play, where people would sort of talk with each other and bounce off each other. So what I did most of the time was I would provide my side of the conversation, even though I wasn't recording, just to give them a Batman to talk to. And directions as well. And, of course, directions, yeah. We, you and I went again and again and again for so, so long, nothing of which we ended up using except the very last stuff when you really nailed it, Neil, in the end. Yeah, to be fair, I probably chose a very bad voice to try and do as Dick Grayson, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's my, my little regret there. But, yeah, so what it was, effectively, was a giant audio jigsaw. People would send me hundreds of little pieces, and I would piece them all together in the editing process. And, um, I, I don't know, I, I, my idol in this particular scenario is Andrea Romano, the voice director for all of the Bruce Tim animated DC cartoons. Bruce. Tim. Because she has in incredibly high standards and is always excellent at getting uh, a fantastic vo vocal performance out of people. Speaking, of voices, so, uh, sorry, yeah. speaking of voices, we haven't uh, heard yet. How many voices did you do? Did I do? Yeah, um, yourself. Okay, right. I did Batman and Bruce Wayne. No. 
That's why I called you here. I haven't been okay in a long time. No, I wouldn't say I was happy. Not yet. But I hope I can be. Joker? That is unless Bats here does the decent thing and comes out fighting! We've got sort of an arrangement, he and I. You see, he's going to punch my ticket. I did Jason Todd and thus Mr. J. Dick's all tangled up in his whole Nightwing career. And that little leaguer you got to replace me is about as useful as nipples on a bat suit. Who have you been talking to? You need to be prepared to take this to places Bruce wouldn't. I will never yield. And as you can see, I will never stop smiling. I did one of the cops that burst in at the same time as uh, Sharon's cop number one. Police! On the ground! I did another of the cops who was wrestling the thief to the ground. I was also the main thief who shot Alfred. You gotta promise everything will be okay. Make it right. I was also a terrified bank customer. I think that's it. So that's nine. <laughs> it's kind of funny when you know that because there's times where you are actually having a conversation with yourself. That's not the first time a voice artist has done that. But I know, but it's so really funny when you know that. Yeah. Um, a lot of people didn't know and were actually... I, 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 the magic is pulled off if they're not obviously aware of that. Now, I am not a professional voice actor by any means. I tried my best. But if I did my job right, then you'll be able to visualize two characters talking rather than me delivering a line and then switching voices and doing another line. What I'd, most of the time, what I'd do is I'd do an entire scene as one character and then an entire scene as another character and then just sort of intermesh them. Oh, but one of the other things is that being the, the ridiculous perfectionist that I am, I pretty much never used any of my first takes. So I'd, I'd sort of splice it all together and go, nah, I'm not really happy with that. And then I would paste over a new take on each one. So there is, it's so much of a, a giant collage of different uh, audio pieces. Thousands of different snippets. I'm going to talk about Matt as Alfred, because it's only a short time on the actual show. But he had to be the emotional core of it. And you had to miss him. So you had to really care about this Alfred straight away. And he nailed it! Mr. Matt Ramsey, thank you very much, Matt Harrier, for that. He did do a really, really good job. I have done. I, I got to hear his audition um, tape, for want of a better word, um, and he was spot on from the word yeah. go. He was. I could have used really his audition fantastic. tape. He, he just gave me the, the the entire scene run through as Alf. He actually played all the characters in that scene. How can I help you, sir? Hello, my name is Alfred Pennyworth, and I'd like to make a withdrawal. Everybody down on the ground. You lady on the ground now. Wait, hold on a moment. Look at her leg. She needs help. Miss, may I? Thank you. Hey, buddy, did you not hear what I said? Ground now. Arms by your sides. Do not reach for that. You, fill this bag up. You've got 30 seconds. Oh, God, sir, I'm so sorry. You're braver than any man I've ever met. Not at all. I'm due back at Wayne Manor. Master Bruce will be waking up. Um, and that was good enough but then I, I dragged him back on and we went through it again and, and I got an even better performance out of him in the end but it was all within him and uh, he's, he's what he's, he's our age isn't he he's like 30 34 uh, he's, a, he's a bit older than me yeah I think he's, I think he's just turned 34 maybe yeah 34 so but he, he sold he's not a 65 year old English butler put it that yeah. way <laughs> we did we did play with the idea of him doing a Michael Caine kind of voice but it, it just it would be too comical 
Uh, you know, as much as I... L- Michael Caine's acting in those films is so phenomenal. But to do Michael Caine, people would be thinking too much, he's doing Michael Caine. Mm. I, th- I, I think, think having, that, having that style did distinguish it from uh, the Nolan films very well. And it, it set it more, for me at least, it set it more in the animated series universe. Hmm. Tara from the Most Popular Girls on the Internet, same podcast. By the way, Matt Ramsey, if you want to hear more of his voice, check out GamerDork's Dork Tunes, where he and his co-host look at video game music, and it's just a phenomenally good show. But Tara from the Most Popular Girls on the Internet, I just I, I called her on relatively last minute on this one and said, look, I've got a, it's a small part. And you need to get very emotional about it. And I think it was like four lines. She plays Estelle. The, she's a lady with a bad leg and, and, and has some sort of leg brace or something. I just I wanted to, to create a, a very small, brief role for a character who was vulnerable and was being kind of singled out by this panicky thief. And she, she actually got into a very emotional place where she was actually thinking about her mother, who very, very sadly died. And she, she cried, and she made me cry during the actual reading of it. And she threw so much into that brief role. I was ah, oh, thank you, Tara. Okay, another of my challenges when I was starting this up was that I, I was trying to start it like a movie. And I was, the whole thing had to feel evocative and like you were listening to a movie playing out. But one which conveniently had nothing which wasn't made clear. Now it's debatable as to whether I actually succeeded with some of the events at the, uh, the end of the... Show, but the the challenge at the beginning was to intercut between Wednesday morning and Wednesday evening. And so when you can hear the rain and it's Oracle talking to Bruce over his comm link, that's at night. And the whole idea was that you were watching these events playing out in the, in the bank, um, but it was also cutting back to the rooftop at night. And I don't know if you guys noticed this, but throughout the show, it's always raining until Bruce is dead. And then it clears up at the very end. Yeah, I noticed that, that you used cut in a lot of the rain effects while it was building up towards the end. It's a nice, clumsy, cinematic representation of depression, but it works for David Fincher, and it worked for Heavy Rain, so it'll work for me right now. <laughs> uh, but it was a good way of making it uh, very moody, and especially when he's talking to Jason, the thunder rolling in that scene is really kind of threatening. So, uh, yeah, I particularly like that. That was a good choice. Um, Leah Haydu as Oracle. I think we'll talk about her later on uh, when we actually get to the scene where Bruce talks to Oracle in her place of business. Again, another phenomenal, non-professional actress who came across like an actual professional. And actually, one more thing I'll say as a tip to you folks. Uh, Leah did her first two scenes with the air conditioning on. So when she sent me the uh, finished audio, it was like, hmm, in the background. And I was I'm so sorry, Leah, I can't use these at all. I don't know, you could, you could have used it for effect, because, I mean, uh, Oracle does spend a lot of time around computers. You, you didn't hear it. <laughs> Tim, I think he's got the gun. So, so yeah, she, it was boiling hot where she was and for scene three where it's supposed to be absolute silence she very gamely turned off her air con and kept it off for the rest of the uh, show so I only had to get her to re-record those two but always turn off any loud buzzy things seriously (laughs) Um, okay did anyone recognise the music from these it was the first two scenes here I know later on you used something from you used stuff from the dark night I used one bit for the Dark Knight once. 
Yes. That's for a very specific reason. Now, this first bit is uh, a song called Ruthless Gravity, and it's from Layer Cake. And with the soundtrack, I really wanted to both play music for people that they hadn't heard before. I started out wanting to be like that, and eventually it became a bit, oh, I've got to stick some Batman Begins in there to really, you know, be evocative during the, uh, the psychology scenes. But the um, I, I got Layer Cake and Sunshine, and I thought, right, these are films that not enough people saw, and they have incredible soundtracks, and they're very serious, and they're very clever, and I'm going to use this dramatic music from that. And uh, this sequence in Layer Cake is really super intense, and I thought, I I need to just hone in on that. And if I'm lucky, not enough people will have seen that film, and they won't immediately start thinking Layer Cake, and if the people had seen Layer Cake, they'd be like, oh yeah, that's that's a good bit of music, but they won't focus too much on it. If If, for example, I only use music from The Dark Knight to begin with then it would have had less of an identity no I think the piece you actually used from The Dark Knight was very well used most of it though I actually struggled to find appropriate music I was like right now it's got to be it's got to fit with the scene and so I just spent ages on iTunes just going listen to that one listen to that one listen to that one and that's why I ended up defaulting to uh, Batman Begins quite a lot but I I specifically focused in Batman Begins on the James Newton Howard bits of the score because those are all about Bruce and those are all the the more vulnerable pieces of music I kept all of the Hans Zimmer stuff separate and other bits of Hans Zimmer's work there are two very significant pieces of Hans Zimmer's work which are not from either Batman or from any of the three Batman films that I did use that I I wanted to feel thematic to the actual story Um, the finale music for example we'll talk about the very end I was thinking that would make a really good Justice League trailer you know months ago immediately went to that one I thought we've got to make this finale uplifting the thief who gets the crap kicked out of him by Batman when Batman breaks down was played by a cat named Matt Wetter who uh, I only actually met the other week at Gplex he's built like a brick outhouse built around another brick outhouse so it but for some reason he managed to come off like this really shrimpy kind of scared thief and it's just a tiny little world but he really sold it and I just said just scared little thief do your best and he recorded that without me directing him at all. So, yeah, thank you very much, Matt. I don't like this. Morty should have been back by now. He was also the cop who said, get this man some medical attention. Get this man some medical attention. Did you do something with that? What, get this man some medical attention? Oh, yeah, actually, I did. I lowered the pitch of his voice. Now, <laughs> Daniel, you can tell me about lowering and raising pitch of voice. <laughs> yes, right? I can. What do you want to know? It's really good for making people feel something different to people's standard voice, right? Yeah, that it is. Yeah, Daniel, for, for the very few uninitiated out there, uh, does all of his lectures in a slightly sped up or slightly pitched up yeah, uh, yeah. voice, which was initially there so that you could cram the entire uh, lecture into a, a specific running time. But uh, it worked so well, right? That what well, you tell us? Yeah, I just enjoyed it, and and everyone. my regular voice is kind of boring, and I decided that slightly irritating was the lesser of two evils. So. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that your regular voice is not boring, Dan, but oh, carry okay. on with the sped up, uh, the sped <laughs> pitched up thing anyway. Yeah, it, it feels very odd having Daniel here, and he, he's not sped up. It's not how I think of Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> I get so, that a lot. What I resolved at the beginning was I could have pitched down my voice electronically for the Batman thing and made myself sound far more... I mean, I'll do it now in the actual recording. I can make myself sound far more threatening and far more of a presence that way. However... That, 
I'd, I'd say is kind of a trap that the Nolan films have fallen into in that they, they electronically alter Christian Bale's voice so much it no longer sounds human. And I kind of wanted to get to the humanity behind Batman, even if he was cracking up. So I wanted it to just come from me. And I didn't really electronically alter anyone's voices, apart from very occasionally when I wanted to... Like, like with the, co- the cop there, I wanted to make him sound like a broader man. Which is ironic, since Matt Wetter is immense! So the Batman voice. Oy. I so wanted to do the Kevin Conroy Batman voice. But when I do Kevin Conroy, it sounds kind of like this. And I sound kind of like a guy trying to do an American man voice, which is okay, but I had to get a real performance out of this one. So I, I, I kind of defaulted to the, the, the one that actually felt right for Batman while I was doing it, which was the one I did on the, the Hush uh, segment, uh, which I didn't work out what it felt like until after the fact. I was thinking, oh, it just sounds like Lance Henriksen, because he kind of sounds like this. But... There's more than just Lance Henriksen there. It's specifically focused on Lance Henriksen playing Kerchak in Tarzan, in that there is a, a real tragedy to Kerchak. Like, he's this immense, strong father figure type guy, but he's breaking inside. I said he could stay. That doesn't make him my son. Another very similar character who has to desperately hold it together to keep everyone else from falling apart, um, Bill Adama from Battlestar Galactica, the old man who, I, again, I didn't realize until after I'd published it. Oh, my God, I've been doing Bill Adama this whole time. I'm tired of turning away from the things that I want to believe in. And the other one, I didn't realize until I was doing his voice for Lyra, Optimus Prime. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Fate rarely calls upon us at a moment of our choosing. And i got to say, it was exhausting doing Batman for a week. I ran myself hoarse. Big props to Christian Bale for being able to keep that up the whole time. I actually, I kind of defaulted to his savage kind of animalistic Batman. I tried to go for kind of like a Dark Knight Returns voice for when he's actually breaking down, when he's really yelling at that uh, thief. Typical, you goddamn bottom-feeding son of a bitch. <laughs> I, I give up already. Always Me. pulling out your guns like you think they're gonna save you. Me. Ah! Tim, get over there. I can hear. I'll be there in 30 seconds. You think that just because you've got the power to take something, oh. that you have the right to? And when I take that power away, what do you learn? What do you learn? Nothing. Jesus Christ, I'm almost there. It's just the same cycle every night. Bale equates Batman as being like a, a, a wild animal uh, uh, when he's when he's doing his like proper intimidation thing, and it needed to be that he was going off the leash at this point. Yeah. So, and the fighting, as any eagle-eared video game fan will have uh, immediately picked up on, uh, was from Arkham Asylum. Simple enough, I I sampled one of the fights from uh, Arkham Asylum where Batman beats the crap out of a bunch of guys, and it was incredibly evocative for a radio play. Sorry, uh, what were your, a lot of your sound effect sources for this? Oh... A lot of them, like, uh, just random, like, door opening, closing, and gunshots and things, I got from YouTube. Because there are a lot of sound effects just on YouTube. Uh, uh, some of them I actually foleyed myself. 
a lot of the Batman sound effects I got, like the grapnel guns, again, was from this one... It was Just go to a walkthrough of Arkham Asylum, and there are lots of segments which don't have any music, but do have lots of the great sound effects. So I, just this one ten-minute stretch I mined so much from. So yeah, every time he goes... That was from Arkham Asylum. I just figured that that would be the sound effect that would be freshest in people's minds at this point. Another thing happens when uh, Batman, you know, corners this guy and beats him half to death. He actually shoots him in the shoulder. I don't know if that came across. He actually did shoot him. And the guy who stops him is uh, Tim Drake, Robin, Dan Floyd. Yeah. (laughs) Yay! Yay! We did did all of your initial recordings in one go, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yeah. For better or worse. It it took you a while. You were really kind of nervous about that. Yeah, I, I was not at all confident that I was going to be able to uh, hit what you were looking for, exactly, especially for it, the end. What was it like researching for the actual role? Uh, I just looked up, you uh, brought up the uh, very brief Robin appearance in Arkham City, which I looked up and listened to for a while, and tried practicing doing kind of a Troy Baker. I didn't need your help. Really? That's not what it looked like from where I was standing. I had it under control. Why did Alfred send you? He was worried about you. Take this, get it analyzed, and start searching the hospitals and emergency rooms. Anyone with this blood in them will be dead within 24 hours. Whose blood is it? Oh, it's yours, isn't it? I'll get into the hospitals and come back. You need my help here. I can handle it. You're needed in Gotham. Things could get worse, much worse. You think? If Strange really knows who you are, what happens if he tells everyone? How will you... Trust me, I'll find a way. If you need me, you know where I am. I know. And you also mentioned uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, kind of an inception, which I also practiced a bit. I will try this. Um, My father accepts that I want to create for myself, not follow in his footsteps. That might work. Might. We need to do a little better than might. Thank you for your contribution, Arthur. Forgive me for wanting a little specificity, Eames. Specificity? But, uh... In the end, I don't know how much either of those really played in to the way it sounded. I think it might have just been more kind of back to just me. I think all we really did is just action you up, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You sort of, you, you pumped your arms like you were running. You're like, I'll be there in two minutes. I can hear. I'll be there in 30 seconds. And it's like, yeah, no, you got it. You nailed it. You sound like Tim right there. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about later on how you pitched your voice down. But you sent me that other stuff later because we recorded it all in one session. And I was happy enough with your take for the later stuff. But I, I knew I could do a lot better than that, though. It was well, it, yeah. it was perfect. So the breakdown comes for Batman when he uses when he uses a gun because I mean this is something that's actually happened repeatedly in other Batman stories. In at the beginning of Batman Beyond, during an, uh, an attempt to rescue a kidnapped victim, um, he's fighting as normal, but I think he he suffer, he starts to suffer a heart attack, and he sort mm. of realizes that the only way he can sort of win is to literally grab the gun and he's so horrified at what he's done that that Mm. was the last time he's Batman he never goes back to being Batman so yes it's actually happened in in previous Batman stuff before and this is kind of like with the Arkham games I wanted to sort of anchor it in various different pieces of Batman lore and mythology and not slavishly stick to just regular comic continuity and go like this happened in that this happened in that just to make it all feel like it could actually happen Picking up a gun and using it and almost killing a man with it would be enough 
to convince Bruce that he had gone over the edge. I mean, effectively, when, when he's talking to Oracle at the beginning going, I'm fine, he's already in the grip of this nervous breakdown. And this is actually kind of personal to me because I've had, I've suffered from pretty severe depression in the past before and I've been able to pull myself back from the edge, but it's, it's not a joke at all. It's a, a genuinely life-changing scenario. It makes you quite introspective and um, prone to self-examination down the line. So the next scene when he talks to Oracle, or well, that doesn't talk to Oracle, where Oracle tries to get through to him, I was trying to make it evocative of Bruce catatonic in a bed at Wayne Manor and Oracle talking to him. You know, his, his eyes are open, but he's just not registering her, and she's kind of trying not to freak out because she's just that kind of person. I don't know quite how that came across because there's a lot you can do with silence, but it's also open to a lot of interpretation. I think a lot of what came across in um, in the Oracle scenes uh, was really enhanced by Leah's delivery. She did a fantastic job with it. Barbara's not an action-y character, and being sort of the, the more the geeky type, everything she says, because she's talking about some quite intense stuff in, in terms of looking at the words, but her delivery was so straight and so dead-on that it really, I think, got across the emphasis without making it too over the top. And that made it uh, a very nice juxtaposition with the intensity of the, the kind of gravel Batman voice that you were doing. The other thing that was important about this scene was that it was a legacy that, of sorts that Alfred had left to Bruce. This notion that Alfred wanted Bruce to look at his life and actually wanted him to seek help about this because they'd been growing increasingly worried about him over the years. Now... Here's the interesting thing. If this is in regular comic continuity and Alfred didn't get killed, because, of course, as we know, he didn't, something had to make him decide not to give Bruce this file on Dr. Whitman. And since this happened just before Infinite Crisis, I'm going to go ahead and say that it's the events of Infinite Crisis. Right, the music here is from Batman Begins, and uh, this is when I first thought, okay, right, I can equate all of this James Newton Howard score, which is the lesser known stuff, because everyone knows that the Batman... kind of you know, the, the Hans Zimmer stuff but the James Newton Howard music is more insidious and it sort of creeps in there and this actually sounds more like the sixth sense or something else that, that he's done so it worked and in terms of not immediately chucking you straight into Batman Begins territory but just sort of tweaking it at you at least I think it did I hope it did I think it did I, I chose the point where Thomas Wayne fishes Bruce out of the Batcave and uh, says, you know, why do we fall? And heals him and gets him over this initial terrifying fear, which is the beginning of Bruce's psychosis. So I just kind of wanted to bring it back to beginnings and say, right, okay, this is now we're going to deal with all this shit. So we'll start from this point. So thematically, I wanted to go from there. And um, it ends in the uh, journey into Gotham on the train when uh, Thomas Wayne is there giving his naive speeches about how, you know, Gotham deserves to be saved uh, back when it was a golden city. It kind of it leads Bruce to the window of Jennifer Whitman. Again, with Alfred, this is Alfred passing on the torch of Bruce's mental well-being 
to someone he is in some way connected with because Jennifer's father served with Alfred when they were both soldiers and uh, actually Alfred was a medical doctor he served in Africa with him so there is a link there she didn't know Alfred much at all I think she'd met him once or twice they do have that bond albeit a six degrees one but specifically that that she served in the military herself yeah so yeah. I, because I, I said that when you were um, when you were writing her character, mm. um, the idea that she knows battleground psychology, um, and therefore Alfred would, would be more likely to trust her to understand the kind of things that Bruce is up against. Yeah, and the way I work the uh, end the plot and the end result, she's not going to become uh, Tim's butler, but she is there at the end as a new figure in the Bat family to fill the gaping hole that Alfred left and she has a lot of Alfred's qualities to her the fact that they're both British helps as well the idea is that she's Tim's support and also psychologically speaking she can help them with all of these various whack jobs that they have to deal with I did think that was really interesting actually in in light of the fact that you used some of the music from Sunshine the process of going from Alfred who is a a trained medic Mm -hmm to Whitman who is a, a trained psychologist is it parallels very neatly the fact that on the Icarus they had a doctor and on the yep. Icarus 2 they had a psychologist yep because they realized at some point in between that in actual fact in the relatively sealed environment of a, a spaceship the physical ailments would actually probably be relatively minor and a doctor would only be able to assist so much what was far more likely to be useful was the the psychotherapist angle that was one of my major reasons again it's very important to note that the reason that batman doesn't have a psychoanalyst with him at all times is because she'd work out his various neural paths and he'd be cured and thus no more batman so it's actually kind of important that he doesn't have one however tim isn't crazy. Tim doesn't have anywhere near the amount of shit stored up inside him that Bruce does. It's a relationship that I believe could actually work. Now, Sharon, you played Dr. Jennifer Whitman. Yes. Who, by the way, is named after Mae Whitman, who voices Katara in Avatar, The Last Airbender. How did you take to the character? I liked all of the, well, a lot of the little things that we've discussed about her character already, you and I talked about as you were writing her. Because I think in her case, you kind of almost seem to want to start with a a solid character and then let the voice come from that. Because obviously, almost everybody else in it is an established character. Their voice is already known. So all you've got to do, I suppose like writing fanfic in a way, all you've got to do is keep true to the characters that are already established and it will come across relatively yeah. well um, when you're creating a new character that's not so easy how do you make somebody who, who fits in with the world that you're writing within but keep them true to themselves and not have them just be a disembodied narrator's voice or the voice of the reader who's trying to get a grip on, on everything that's going on mm. although she does actually serve as a wonderful Harry Potter character to have occasional things the audience who might not know this stuff need to know she does although I have to admit and you may want to leave this out of the podcast <laughs> um, I have to admit when we were re-listening to it today the number of 
lines within her scenes that struck me as being very expositionary. Explain that to me. I think, well, I think it, it's, you know, the first time you hear it, it's fine and it, it doesn't impact at all. But obviously, once you've listened to it a couple of times, then obviously you know the things that she's being told. So yeah. I, th- I think it's exactly the same thing as you were talking about, Memento, that you, you wished you could just click a button and have an edit where they don't explain everything. Uh, um, no, actually, that was Inception. Oh, Inception, sorry. I thought you were talking yeah. about Memento. So. so even Chris Nolan can't do a film where when you have to explain everything for a second viewing, you're like, yeah, come on, come on. Time's a wasting. Indeed. Um, but so I don't feel too bad about that. But ultimately, no. there is no way you can explain about Jason Todd and have that seem natural unless someone asks Batman. No. If they even do it in Under the Red Hood. I mean, they show it in Under the Red Hood. Yeah. But there were a couple of things which, that, which aren't common knowledge, which I kind of had to get um, established there. But I tried my best to weave it into conversation so that it was pertinent. She asked him, you know. Yeah. Who's going to take over now? It worked. But it is a weakness of the actual show. I but that, that, that as really you say, important. it's you know how else do you you get that across? That's one of the things that every writer has to to sort of have their own battle with and, and find their own way of um, of working with that. And I think, in all fairness, you, you did a pretty damn good job with it. So again, it was just neat to know stuff. One of the best things about audio drama is, and especially if you're if you're doing something in an established universe, you don't have to write all of those scenes where you set up the characters because they're already there you you don't have to go for completely fatuous dialogue i pared this down to only what needed to be said well that's this is the nature of fan fiction this is one of the things that's so awesome about it you, you're writing for people who already know that universe you can you can make reasonable assumptions about what they already know yeah. and it usually makes for a, a stronger story that doesn't have the slightly clunkier explanatory paragraphs I've come. I've tried in the past writing. I've been trying for the past twelve years now, writing my own material and coming up with stuff from the ground up. And it, I always end up going back and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting because it always seems too clumsy to me. The music during this first scene when he meets uh, Whitman is the is Batman Begins still, and it's the only time you ever hear that. And I went for one of the more subtle moments when that happens, but it's there. There's also the music from when Rachel Dawes enters the Batcave in the first Nolan film. I wanted to establish a thematic link between the characters of Rachel and Jennifer. Both were created and added to the Batman story to link Bruce back to his moments of pain, forcing him to examine his motives and make him want something more from his life that wasn't Batman, but was just Bruce. Then of course there's the mutual link to Alfred, who only ever wanted to see this boy happy and safe. Also, both are targeted by the Joker in a clear-cut decision to redouble Batman's resolve to maintain his role in their dichotomy of order and chaos, but of course with different end results. I'm curious, uh, Sharon, have you done any acting before this? Uh, not professionally. Um, <laughs> my degree was in English and drama, so I did a little bit of acting at um, university, and um, I have a, an A-level in theatre studies, so I did quite a lot of acting in sixth form and I was in various school productions and things like that but that that's about as far as it went I don't think I've really done anything since um, since I finished uni except the diary um, which the I'm diary. sure Alex will tell you about at some stage I might even put it on YouTube not my proudest moment <laughs> I have to say um, but I didn't write the lines did I sweetie <laughs> no <laughs> 
I, I, I will actually put this on YouTube at some point. It's um, it's the first studenty film that uh, we uh, I made with my uh, my good friend Matt Lowe. He came up with the first draft of the script. I rewrote the whole thing, and every poxy awful line is my fault. <laughs> and actually, it wasn't. There were there were odd similarities in the story with this. Yeah, I'll, I'll stick that up there uh, with Matt's permission on YouTube. I think it's time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, yeah. That's it. When you first um, performed as Whitman on your first take, this was the only time when I ever actually got to literally record the lines with one other person because I, I sat down with Sharon and we went through the lines back and forth and we bounced off each other. And it was rubbish. Uh, we, we were... Well, I was hogging the mic, wasn't I? Um, I don't... That that was part of it. That was very definitely part of it. It made it a lot harder. Um, you had to crane forward and go into almost like a, an L shape to actually. Yeah, and you kept saying you kept telling me off because I was too quiet, and I was like, "Well, that's because the microphone's all the way in front of you." <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, that didn't help. But no, you you were really not keen on my first delivery at all. But um, at the, pretty close to the end um, product, you actually went back and, and redid all of your lines again from scratch and did a fantastic performance. Mm. But that was after you'd done the end. Basically, we got all of your lines for the entire show in one go, and you worked yourself up from sort of just meeting Batman to witnessing Bruce Wayne die, and uh, you went through a whole emotional gamut by the end there. Yeah. So that when you came back, you were more confident with the character, and so all of that early... that early scenes is your second version of that yeah I think part of the problem with it was that um, essentially although I have um, done sort of quite a lot of of amateur acting before um, A I'm used to uh, theatre performance which is completely different yep and small sort of studio theatrical performance where it's it's different again a lot of the way i tend to do things is quite visual so it's very very hard to get that across in audio and my voice is quite flat as i'm sure anybody who's listened to me on the podcasts can attest i don't tend to vary the emotion in my voice much and I think that was another one of the things that drove you a little bit crazy. But because of who she was as well, that was the other thing. Because of the, the type of character she was, I was thinking of her as this very sort of stable, straight down the line kind of person. And it meant that a lot of what I was saying had very little variation in emotional tone, even towards the end. And we actually, I, I had to get myself quite riled up to be able to do the end and get any kind of emotion out of it because what was coming out was just so straight and so flat. You weren't even scared when the Joker was menacing you. There was that point when I came after you with a drinking straw. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. (laughs) Why didn't you video this? This would be great. (sighs) Well, I... I, can't, I just sort of leapt on, uh, on her with a drink. He had, he had a straw in his hand and he just grabbed hold of me and held the straw to my throat as if he had a, like a knife to my throat. And, and it was, oh, dear me. Anyone else thinking of Red Dwarf right now? Uh, well, no, I, I was trying to do the... acting and then... I was trying to do the bit where the, uh, the Joker gets hold of Rachel in The Dark Knight, but it, uh, Sharon just sort of froze and then started laughing, so it didn't quite work. Mm. <laughs> Evidently, you can't manage somebody with a drinking straw. It would appear not. Wait, wait, wait. Let's talk. Just for a while. I might actually be able to help you. Let's. <laughs> Let's what? 
<laughs> what, right here? <laughs> I know, you're a fast one. But I think I'm, I just... I've got a very sort of fixed idea in my head about how a person responds to a crisis, or at least how a person who has that kind of training and that kind of background would respond to a crisis. And, and all the takes where she was supposed to be terrified, she was just in my head. She was just sort of standing there, going, "Oh no, not scared, just getting on with it." Which doesn't sell <laughs> the terribly, fear of it. Terribly British. <laughs> it's a tightrope, though, because if you go too far, you become Kim Bessinger in. 1989 Batman shrieking all the time <laughs> yeah Lyra actually got quite annoyed while watching it she went she's always screaming she's like my friend Grace who is <laughs> three years old I might add so yeah okay Neil finally you enter as Nightwing for this next scene this was your, your, your major scene as uh, Nightwing. All the rest of the stuff was sort of talking over the radio. You weren't actually technically present. For a start, how did you prepare? Uh, it was kind of funny because when you, you, you shot me an email about it and asking me actually to play Nightwing, I was reading Nightwing at the time, the, the new 52 Nightwings. It's a good way to prepare. So it was kind of happy coincidence at the time. And there's a, a scene opening in the first issue where he's pretty much monologuing to himself about Gotham. So I just right. was re- kept rereading that part in my head, trying to get the character down there. I, I know you've been kind of a big fan of Nightwing for quite some time, so I think, you know, I was like, right, if I don't ask Neil to be Nightwing, then he's going to go, why did you ask me? So I thought, it's, it's pretty much a given on this one. Yeah, I, I, for some reason I just really do enjoy Nightwing comics. Uh, anything that Stick Race and I do generally tend to enjoy a lot. I think it's because he is sort of like Batman without the psychological baggage. Yeah, and uh, for that first hour when we went through your lines, it was pretty much a tour of Brooklyn, wasn't it? Yeah, um, one of the things about uh, Dick Grayson is he has spent a lot of time in New York, mm. So, and I can't really do a New York accent very well, as you may yeah. have noticed. <laughs> well, when I was giving you direction, I was basically just being Carmine Falcone from Batman Begins, going, hey, yo, so I'm Nightwing, okay? Forget about it. So you talk like this. Hey, Bruce, why don't you let out sometime? Yeah, I don't think that would have worked, would it? I don't I think it probably would have been a bit I, I would like to point out the other obnoxious. thing. The other interesting thing was, when you asked me to record this, I was actually suffering from uh, a gum infection at the time as well. <sighs> Just to make my life even more fun. And there was at least three people who had colds on this production, so they are troopers for managing to get through on this. <coughs> and I suppose no one else had the fact that you kept making dick jokes at them. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they were referring to you, and I, and I was talking about you know how their relationship with Dick and how much they love Dick or how much they're indifferent to Dick. But my God, when Grayson was first written, I don't think the word Dick was in the same kind of parlance as it is now. No. But the amount of fun I had with Dick, seriously. Dick yes. was going in there, here and here. And People were crazy for Dick. I'm trying to be all serious and you just will make some random Dick joke. <laughs> so, yes, the reveal of Dick. See what I had to put up with? Oh, how did you do it? I am a juvenile director, I, I, I will freely admit it. But, um, but yeah, we, we got through it. I think there are probably a few outtakes I'm going to be playing here. Oh, no. And I don't want it now. That's what you were going to say, right? You don't... You want me to be the bad man? <laughs> Tanked it. I uh, know. <clears throat> well, Bruce. Well, Bruce. Tim. Another two nasal. Tim. Too British. 
<laughs> we got there in the end because we, you know after after we went through. I found this with most of my um, uh, my, my cast. The first run we did, I would just keep coaching you through the lines over and over again, painfully for everyone involved, until. You were like, right, I got it. And we'll just do one more run through. And then that one more run through, which would usually take about three minutes, was that. Was that it? It was like that yeah, it, final lines in one go. It sort of takes some time to sort of... You, even though you might know the character in your head, you've got to get into the character that you had on the page. You yeah. have to find it on the page. And once you sort of locked in it, it was easy. Although you didn't half give me some tough lines to try and do. Yeah, what was the, the worst one? There was the thing about... Oh, I think the worst one was me trying to do the fundamentalist zealot or something. Oh, God, that would... the fundamentalist zealot would be a bad crime fighter. Wow, who'd have thought the fundamentalist zealot would be a bad crime fighter? Wow, who'd have thought the fundamentalist... There. Fundamentalist is hard. Wow, who'd have thought the fundamentalist zealot would be a bad crime fighter? Wow, who'd have... Wow. Who'd have thought the fundamentalist zealot would be a bad crime fighter? Wow! 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 Who'd have thought the fundamentalist zealot would be a bad crime fighter? <laughs> Putting the fun into fundamentalist. Oh, that was brutal. I, I, the, the one line that, strangely enough, I had the hardest time doing isn't even in the scene. It's actually from later on where he just goes, yes, sir. And just for some reason, I could not lock in the voice. <sighs> that was the last thing like, you had to do. Shona was calling you from there. Come on, come on. And I was like going, yes, sir. And you were going, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> it was like from Full Metal Jacket or something. Yeah, the, the trouble was that the voice I picked, which I really kind of do regret. I wish I'd done something a little bit less high and a little bit deeper. But um, You did just, go a bit nasally and twangy at some point. It is very hard to keep that from going nasally and twangy. And just trying to get the right inflection on two words was so flipping irritating. You managed it in the end. I got in the one end, really, really yeah. great one in the end. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Wow. Sir, yes, sir. But the voice, the voice, you know, this kind of voice, it, yeah, bad idea. I, I, I'm sorry if it was a bit irritating. I was trying to do something that was a little bit different at least. Maybe it didn't work. But I still, I still did have fun playing Nightwing, so I can't complain. No, I was just going to say, I think I think the accent worked. I think it, it was pretty authentic in terms of being, Lord forgive me, a dick voice. Well, you sounded like you've been around the block more than Tim. Yeah, exactly. I, d- I think possibly the the only reason that you were making it hard for yourself, Neil, is that it was not an accent that was a, that was really natural for you, and so you, you've kind of got that hurdle to overcome before you even start on getting the delivery. You've got to get the accent. But I think from you know you, you did a really good job from that perspective. So I did get shouted at every time I did something too British. <laughs> oh, too, oh, actually, you want to know, talk about too British? This is one of my uh, mini-reviews on YouTube. Really well done. I did notice a little bit of Brit accent during a Bruce scene, but it was very minor. Whoever played Jason Todd, you did an excellent job. Right, <laughs> that, was from, that was from Henley31. Right, let me tell you this. I suck at Bruce Wayne really, really badly. That man is easy. Bruce Wayne is really hard. That is why my Bruce Wayne is all over the place. He's Christian Bale, he's Kevin Conroy, he's Kevin Conroy doing Batman. 
it was it was everywhere, and then every so often I'd do the pronunciation on a word which would be too British, and I tried to catch every single one of them, but some of them still slip through. So for that, folks, I apologise. Bruce Wayne, as it turns out, is way harder to do than Batman. If you ask anyone in the world what does Batman sound like, they'll go into a sort of oh, he sounds like this, and like sort of a deep husky, like sort of charismatic but uh, unless you're the dude from year one voice. But you ask them to sound like Bruce Wayne, what? They'll, uh, the best they'll do for you is sound a bit like Christian Bale. Yeah. There is no established Bruce Wayne voice. With perhaps the exception of Conroy, who, whose voice traits are clearly different for each character. Mm. Yeah. Um, I suppose if you're a fan of the animated series, they, they may be able to sound like a little bit like this, which is kind of what... He, he actually makes his voice sound lighter than his own normal speaking voice, so that there is a clear delineation between his Batman and his... I mean, he, Kevin Conroy is my goddamn idol, as far as I'm concerned. He managed to do Batman throughout his career, and he even... He changes it up each time. Like, for example, the Arkham games, he's even more gruff and angry-sounding, and Joker... Like that, he's not as. Lyra refers to him as kind Batman, but I think she's mainly referring to him from the animated series. And this is in comparison to Christian Bale, who is not kind, or silly Batman, who is Adam West, Val Kilmer, or George Clooney, or Prince. So yeah, performing Bruce was was tough. I gotta say, because what I had to do in the end was do Batman's voice. So I'd start like this, no, and then I'd dial it back down again. So I'd sound a bit like Bruce Wayne, but a little bit huskier. Uh, but I couldn't maintain that throughout the whole thing. So sometimes I sounded like Bruce Wayne, and sometimes I sounded like this. It, it, it's, it's tough, I will say right now. I am not looking forward to doing Bruce later on if I do more of these. I'm going to have to get myself a set Bruce Wayne voice and be really careful of sounding too English, because that happened many times. Well, the thing is, I mean, when you... Most of the cast, especially in the main roles, are English, with the exception, you know, of, of Daniel, who's playing yeah. Tim. Um, well, actually, hang on. There's Leah, and then there's Sassy and Tara, all American. So I think it's actually about half and half. But we're all supposed to be playing Americans, apart from Matt playing Alfred and Sharon playing uh, Jennifer. If oh. experience has taught me anything, then most of us here in America are pretty terrible at affecting a British accent. But, I mean, I think if I do future ones of these, I'm going to try to get as many people who are from that country as possible before so that I'm not confronting this same problem each time, which is going to make recording difficulties, but it will make it sound more authentic. I will say your Bruce Wayne toward the end, uh, toward like the final scenes with Bruce Wayne, did feel very on the mark, like in the just discussion with Joker in the cave. That felt right. That one I was going for more of a... Uh, it ended up... I don't even know what I was going for, but it ended up more like Conroy. I yeah, think that, that felt good. I think also you have to take into account that while these, you know, a fair few British characters in here playing American characters, the thing may be an hour long, but our individual parts are so short that it takes a long time to lock in that. So the more you do, you may find that the voices will lock in naturally. The yeah. more people get used to doing set voices. These people were doing this out of the kindness of their hearts and as favours to me, and what I don't want to end up doing is running them ragged. <laughs> There were two or three people who I asked who really wanted to do it but just couldn't get the time to do it, so I ended up having to scrabble at the last minute to have other people do their voices. And it's it's tough. It's really tough to put something like this together. Because of this, I have something in mind I would like to do 
for KDS. It's not going to be something I've written, but I do want to do a little audio thing for, say, the Christmas show. And I'm dreading it, uh, just hearing all the amount of hard work that you've put in. I'm, I'm kind of dreading it and excited for it. Well, give me a shout if you need any help with it. Actually, no, you reminded me, this isn't the first audio drama I've done. Uh, I did do the, um, the, the Blue Sun thing, which was, I think it was just me and Sharon, wasn't it? Are you going to eat anything other than fruit? I mean... Those are super apples. I mean, seriously, but the way they prepare these steaks. I would kill for one of these steaks. I have killed for one of these steaks. You have a faster metabolism than I do. And you're not even drinking coffee. That's somewhat noteworthy. I'm trying to limit my intake. Everything. Everything that's tasty or fun. Yes, I can see that. You're like a monk this morning. I'm incredibly creeped out. I feel like you're going to start, you know, purifying yourself with a mixture of pepper and water and lemon juice and salt. Do they use salt? Are you done? Seriously have something that's not good for you. Will that make you happy? Yes, it would make me ecstatic. Chocolate, now. You are exhausting, sir. All the more reason for you to drink more coffee. I'll have a coffee. Good. <clears throat> and a pastry. No pastry. You're the boss. Uh, I did do the, um, the Northern Lights or audio play, which I would love someday to do the whole thing, but Christ... This was just one hour thing. That would take hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Oh, Yurik, I've done a terrible thing. I do, you're going to have to fight Ifra Ragnarsson, and you ain't ready. You're tired and hungry and your armor's... What terrible thing? I told him when you was coming because I read it on the symbol reader, and he's desperate to be like a person and have a demon, just desperate. So I tricked him into thinking I was your demon, and I was going to desert you and be his instead, but he had to fight you to make it happen. Because otherwise, Yurik did, they'd never let you fight. They were just going to burn you up before you got too close. You tricked your Faragnason. Yes, I made him agree that he'd fight you instead of just killing you straight off like an outcast. And the winner would be King of Bears. I had to do that because... Balakwa? No, no. You are Lyra Silvertongue. To fight him is all I want. And and yeah, the I also did uh, the. Do you remember the for Digital Cowboys fans? We did the the Ghosts of Digital Cowboys Past, Present, and Future. <laughs> I remember that. That was a good show. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure, Alex. He seems pretty serious. Whoa. Oh my God! I am the Ghost of Podcast Past. I have come to take you back in time all the way to Christmas 2007 and your first lame Christmas podcast. I see a podcast without originality. A pair of motormouths in love with their own opinions, yakking on into eternity. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the show will suck. But yeah, I, I love these little things. and I'd, I'd actually love to do these all the time. It's just so much work. I think in all seriousness... Like, while I say it only took me a week once I had all the audio... When I say a week, what I mean is I slept and then I worked. I, I literally did nothing else. Sharon can attest to this. Yes. <laughs> you said that with weariness. <laughs> but, uh, yeah... You it, work very, very hard, sweetheart. It's, yeah. it's quite common for you to basically be doing nothing but working. I put my nose to the grindstone until there was a stripe on my brain. <laughs> Okay. Uh, you, may, you may not want to answer this, but if you were to do another one of these, do you think you'd want to continue this story, or would you... Uh, at the end, my friend. Okay. okay. <laughs> there was a point when... Uh, uh, same point when he references Joker, uh, when he says that uh, he's going to have to tell the people he trained to find him and put him in Arkham. And I wanted that to be a reference to the Grant Morrison Arkham Asylum, a serious house on serious earth, 
story, the idea being that Bruce has now recognised that he is just as crazy as the people he's been trying to put away year after year after year. He's trying to make himself not a danger to people. Because, I mean, a lot of people are going to be really unhappy hearing the notion of uh, Batman hanging up his cloak and, and giving it over to someone else. But I wanted to give him a very good reason. And not being able to trust himself not to kill is a very good reason why Bruce would actually stop. On the subject of that particular graphic novel, because mm-hmm. I have to say that is my absolute favourite Batman story. Yep. I, I love that novel. It's awesome. One thing that I've always felt quite acutely about it is that it's very telling about Bruce's character that he he does consider himself to be, as you put it, as crazy as all of the people that he's put in Arkham. Because he's patently not. He is extremely hard on himself in terms of relative sanity and his notion of what constitutes normality and sanity is, is a very a very specific one, which I don't think any mental health professional would hold him to. And ultimately, what it comes down to is this thing of he is not a danger. He is very, very careful and very, very controlled about the harm that he dishes out or or avoids dishing out. And I think that makes him about the sanest man in Gotham. There is the notion that Bruce also wants to be happy, which I wanted to relate back to Mask of the Phantasm. And uh, actually that episode of the animated series, Chemistry, where if Bruce feels happiness, or at least a need to be happy, uh, specifically if it's tied to a woman, then that need to be the Batman, that pain that he feels on a daily basis that drives him forwards, ebbs away. So I kind of wanted to, to make this an aversion to the the longing to actually kill someone, to just actually, no, I want to step away from this and I actually do want to be happy. I wanted to present people with a solid, real-life reason why he would actually stop. I, I think it really does. I think you, you really did achieve that. Thank you. It, it's quite, I think it's quite true to the character that that would be the case because it has cropped up in a couple of different iterations of Batman. The woman comes along, he falls in love, and the bat kind of fades very quickly. This notion that love, specifically romantic love, kind of cancels out the rage. It, it, well, not necessarily cancels it out, but certainly goes a long way to healing it. Yeah. We're going to take a break here because this conversation went on a lot longer and I decided to make the show a two-parter. The concluding chapter will be released this coming Sunday with more deconstruction, deep analysis, and of course highly inappropriate outtakes. And I'm going to leave you now in the capable hands of one of the greatest voiceover artists in the world, Mr. Mark Hamill. Oh, and Red here is actually Morgan Freeman's son, Alfonso. The Joker came to Arkham Asylum in the summer of '09. I know as much because I remember thinking... That is the whitest son of a bitch I have ever seen. He had a funny way about him. Not ha-ha funny. More stab-stab funny. Welcome back to Arkham's Top 40. The Riddler writes, Joker, can you please play Who Let the Dogs Out? (laughs) Well, Riddler, here's your Jethro dedication. Yes! And despite appearances... We became friends. I hear you're a man who can get things. Well, that depends. I need a large poster of Phyllis Diller. That may take time. Time's the one thing I've got. Well, that and dementia. 
Scarecrow, check. Two-Face, check. Joker? Joker, you better be sick or dead in there, I sh** you not! I remember thinking it would take a man a hundred years to tunnel out of Arkham. What the hell? The Joker did it in just two days. <laughs> Clearly, I got trouble with the math. Think you can escape through the sewer line, huh, Joker? Not with the Batman on your tail. Ugh, smells like Batman forever. <laughs> Sucker! But what we didn't know was that the Joker hadn't actually left yet. Buffalo wings, do your thing! <laughs> Uh, hello, there's a man down here. Please don't flush anything for a while. Forget about the green mile. Try walking the brown mile. <laughs> oh, God, oh, God. Batman crawled to a river of 500 yards long. I remember thinking that was probably the length of five ping pong tables. Again, not so good with the math. I remember thinking you'd have to be pretty insane to play a joke like that on the Batman. Oh, come on! Then again, I remember thinking that was pretty damn funny. Digital Gonzo, episode 94, dated Sunday the 12th of August 2012, The Making of Batman Breakdown, part 2 of 2. So the next scene, he meets Jason. Now, Jason's a great character, and I... There is a very specific reason that I grabbed this one for myself again. I knew that after I devised it with David that this character of Jason was going to end up being the Ledger Joker. And I don't know anyone who does a really good Ledger Joker. So I thought, okay, I will, I'll take this one. And I think this is probably the one, the one scene where it's the most obvious. It's me talking to myself. And also, I'm, I'm walking a tightrope because if I telegraph too early that this is what's going to happen to Jason, then it's not going to be a surprise to people. And I think when I first devised it, he was going to have a lot more of a sort of a loose version of the Ledger Joker voice. And then I was trying to make him sound kind of more natural, like who could the man have been before he became Joker? I just wanted to make it sound like Imagine Joker playing a relatively normal guy who was also very damaged. I really like the scene because he, Jason gets to Batman very quickly in just a few lines. And you can just see that at this point, Jason is a huge weak spot in Batman's overall psyche. Which, which really is as it should be. It's his biggest failure. It's Jason. Mm. Although, actually, you could feasibly say that Alfred, the fact that he wasn't... I made it that Alfred was killed during the daytime, round about 10 in the morning, when Bruce was asleep. So that, and this is one of the scenes that you never get to see. Bruce wakes up and finds out via telephone that Alfred is now dead. That's when he starts to crack immediately, because it's, it's a, just a sudden crime out of nowhere, but it wasn't even on his watch. It wasn't like he could have even done something about it. Which, again, adds to the sense that he's robbed in powers, powerlessness. Yeah. It's like also the, the notion that he spent all these years trying 
to stem the tide of crime in Gotham. And not only has it not succeeded, he's actually made things worse in his mind. Uh, the music during the Jason scene is, again, from Lair Cake. It's called Junkie Fight. And uh, it's, it's a really nice kind of creeping, nervous, kind of nasty bit of bassy music. I kind of wanted to set up the later Lair Cake music and to also harken back to the earlier one. So it's sort of thematically... Terrible occurrences in Bruce's life all seem to be linked by the Layer Cake music. I recommend everyone buy the soundtrack to Layer Cake and, and buy the film. And of course, buy the film. It's fantastic. Daniel Craig effectively auditioning to play James Bond. Right. Oh, there's one tiny hidden thing at the end of this one when he says, "Don't get in my way," and grapnels away from there. There is a roll of thunder covering up his grapnel gun, but I chose a specific point when there was Joker teeth chattering in the background in Arkham Asylum, just subtly setting up the Joker undertones for Jason. I still have to listen for that. It's very subtle. And here is the same sound effect without the rain or thunder. So the next scene is the regression, and this might have been the most difficult one to actually perform. Sure. It was very difficult to listen to. Still is. Because uh, I had to get totally into the role of this. I couldn't just get into the role of Bruce. I had to get into the role of Bruce as an eight-year-old boy. Uh, as, a, as a man, mastering an eight-year-old boy's voice and psyche. And um, It's actually an interesting analogue for one, the, the best scene in Batman Forever, but it's just done right this time. You could even say that Jennifer is Chase Meridian done right. She's not a, a rabid slut like Nicole Kidman comes off in that film. Humping Batman's leg. <laughs> <laughs> what the shit is? It's not Nicole's fault. Akiva Goldsman, Haddock slap in the face. Uh, but yeah, the scene where Bruce in Batman Forever regresses to a time just after the events of year one. And I, wanted, I, I specifically thought when I was doing this, I'm going to have to go back to that moment because this is a point of commonality with all of the Batmans. Now, it doesn't matter if it's uh, the year one comics, if it's Batman Begins, if it's the animated series, if it's Arkham Asylum, it's all going back to this one point because this is the point where Bruce's psyche shattered and he had to pull it back together over years and focus himself and uh, if you listen very carefully in the background, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious there's something going on, but the scene in Batman Begins where Bruce's parents get killed is played just for a fraction of a second in reverse. No! Yeah, I had to uh, get very much into character. I had to pretty much almost uh, get into a trance-like state while I was reading the lines. And, and yeah, it was, it was kind of uh, harsh to get into that emotional state. And that leads on to a notion that I the entire plot is predicated on as in terms of Bruce pulling himself out of this, which is a conversation that he might have had with Alfred, something that could have happened. It could even have happened in Batman Begins after Bruce hugs Alfred and says he misses them so much. Alfred was trying to teach Bruce about the notion of accepting death, understanding it and moving on and being able to live with it, and that Bruce wouldn't listen to him, and that, that Bruce had at that point built up an aversion to even the nature of death, so that every time the subject of moving on was ever brought up to him, he just atrophied 
and went like concrete. No one's ever been able to get through to him about it again since that point. It governs his entire relationship with death. He can't let people die. He certainly can't kill them. And he's, he's terrified of the Reaper. And a lot of this actually came from the Scarecrow sections in Arkham Asylum. You actually fight skeletons and you're walking past coffins. Bruce, at least the way that Paul Dini writes him in this, is terrified of death. And I wanted to really focus on that for this specific point. The point where she gets him to actually listen to Alfred and actually take on board what was being said and retroactively accept it at many, many points along his life, I wanted to actually be a sense of psychological unwinding and then re-spooling, which actually held weight medically. I would say so, yes. You wouldn't get it all done in one session. As far as I am aware, um, from my very amateur standpoint it's something that theoretically at least would be sound but like i said it would t- it would take a lot more time than that and a lot more um unpicking but uh, but yeah i think so i was very careful not to mention how many sessions he'd had with her because there's there a huge amount of time compression here he could have had maybe 20 sessions but i just played the important ones yeah because it's drama and you can't do real time well, healing for everyone yeah. drama it's, it works in a condensed sense Absolutely. Meeting Clark and Diana. This was one of the ones that went in relatively late in the scripting stage. I thought to myself, right, I I could not do Justice League. I could just not mention it at all. But I love the Justice League Unlimited cartoon so much. And I love reading certain Justice League comics that I've read, specifically ones written by Brad Meltzer, who is a master craftsman of very human drama with DC superheroes. He's done uh, Justice League of America, I think it's like 1 through 12, or like the first two arcs on that, and a couple of one-shots. He did Green Arrow Archer's Quest, which is a really nice personal story that follows on after Kevin Smith's Quiver storyline. He did the wonderful, poignant Identity Crisis. I recommend Brad Meltzer to all DC fans out there. He was one of my major influences on this, because he doesn't focus on big bust-up fights and throwing people through buildings. He focuses on the psychological toll that wearing these capes has on these people and the relationships that form between them. You know all that stuff that was thrown out the window with the New 52? And I guess we can now build up again over the next few decades? There's still some of it there, but yeah, a lot of yeah, it. A lot of it is now <laughs> well, no, I, Let me correct myself. The stuff that's still there is in the stuff that didn't technically get reset. Yeah, Batman's kind of a grey area. Batman and Lantern. I think the only two that didn't get fully reset. Now, if you read Justice League of America, which was when they rebooted it a few years ago, like 2005, which I think was just after Infinite Crisis, the whole of the first arc, Tornado's Path, is Bruce, Clark, and Diana sitting down and just putting photographs of various prospective leaguers in the middle of the table and debating it. You know, are they going to be in the league or not? It's a brilliant bit of setup because it tells you all you need to know throughout those comics about the relationship between those three characters. And there's a episode of Justice League Unlimited, the I think it's that third episode of the first series of Justice League Unlimited, which would technically be the third series of Justice League, uh, called For the Man Who Has Everything, where Bruce and Diana go to the Fortress of Solitude for Superman's birthday to bring him a gift. And it's this really sad, poignant episode that just happens to also contain what Bruce wants most of all, which is that his father would actually stand up to the mugger and prevent 
the deaths of his parents by beating the shit out of him. Which I thought, right, I am going to get that into this story as well. That was originally a story written by Alan Moore, which they adapted into the cartoon. So it's those two major things which influenced the Clark and Diana scene here. Because I thought, I, I love this dynamic between the three of them. I've got to reference that. And if Bruce was stepping down from the JLA, what would they say? Would you get him? I'm not saying anything. He'll hear and spoil the surprise. He can hear that, too. How about you? He's not the easiest person in the world to buy birthday presents for. Bruce, you didn't get him a gift certificate. No. Cash. Yeah, I mean, often that, that relationship is referred to as the Trinity anyway. And depending on which one you read, Clark kind of is Bruce's best friend. Again, depending on which one you read, because I think in one of the ones that I read recently, uh, Bruce says, it might even have been Hush, was it that Clark says to Bruce, you know, I respect you, but I don't like you? depends on who writes it. Uh, I've read it where it's it's one of those weird, they do and don't get on type of friendships, or sometimes yeah. they are, they do get on, but they are very well aware that they're opposite sides yeah. of the coin. But I was trying to get across that slightly uneasy relationship he has with Clark in it, and that, yeah. that when Clark says, We'll miss you. Hmm. No, I mean it, I really will. James Batchelor, of your best mate of uh, Game Burst, he came on anxiety-ridden about not being able to do a good Superman voice, and I thought he sounded great. I hired him because he sounds like a Boy Scout, and he happens to lead a troop of Boy Scouts. I was just about to say that maybe because he is a Boy Scout. The highest moral fibre I could find. <laughs> yeah, James has got a great kind of enthusiastic, big, bold voice, and I thought, yeah, he could nail Superman. He does a good job. I, I actually got privy to a strange conversation at Gplex between Matt Harrier and James Batchelor complimenting each other on each other's voice work, which was quite fun. Alfred and Superman, overheard by Nightwing. Yes. I do like that these scenarios can occur in my circle of friends. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and the Diana one, Tara came in again at the last minute on that one, and she did wonderful. See, Tara usually has a very delicate, very feminine, very pretty voice, and I thought, I don't immediately envision her as, as Diana, so I didn't immediately ask her. But she came across and she grabbed the character like that. And she was compassionate, but strong. And yeah, perfect, Diana. Thank you so much again, Tara. Uh, I played a little bit on the relationship, which doesn't seem to be in the comics, but is definitely in Justice League Unlimited, where there is a little frisson between Bruce and Diana. Which is excellent. So yeah, when she gives him a little hug at the end, it's one of my favorite lines in the entire uh, thing is like, You don't hug. You never hug me. I'm holding him. Okay, this is awkward. <laughs> it's really sweet, and I just wanted to just get that in there, just to, to make that scene feel like a Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman scene that felt authentic, but also not one that you'd really heard before, which I thought was nice. Knowing next to nothing about the Justice League stuff, that turned into one of my favorite scenes as well. Have you watched Justice League Unlimited yet? Not at all. Daniel Floyd, I'm I have just worked out, worked out what to get for you retroactively for your March <laughs> birthday. <laughs> Not coincidentally, in the aforementioned Justice League Unlimited episode, Wonder Woman brings Superman a new breed of Rose for his birthday named the Krypton. However, in the Alan Moore original, it was Batman who bought the flower. And it's fitting that he reprises this in Breakdown by giving Barbara Gordon Pennyworth Blue Roses.
The music in this scene is again from Sunshine and it was Mercury. I was batting about whether to place this in the Fortress of Solitude and originally I put in the classic John Williams music but it made it feel too 70s. It made it feel too sort of epic, sort of 80s, 70s fantasy sci-fi family action and not the serious adult drama from contemporary times I was trying to go for. So again, I went for Sunshine and I made it definitely the watchtower. It's supposed to be up in space. This is the bit where in Sunshine they see Mercury and they're closer to Mercury than anyone has ever been in human history and it's a wonderful moment and I just thought, right, we'll get that and it's got this kind of real poignancy to it. Oh, and there are references in there to uh, Hal Ollie and Barry, three major characters because you've got Green Lantern, Green Arrow and The Flash, all of whom are major leaguers but all of whom have died and a little nod there about, exactly it's like a recurring joke in the whole thing, Jason Todd died but got better, Hal and Ollie died but got better, which is from Monty Python and the uh, Holy Grail. What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt! Got better. This notion that, that since the death of Superman, which again is referenced by Diana, you can get better from death. Which is ridiculous. But nobody um, dies in comic books forever. No, only Gwen Stacy, Ileana Rasputin, and uh, well, even Barry's come back now, so. It just, it, it doesn't happen. Ultimately, I feel like it cheapens death. Now, interestingly enough, the fact that I killed Bruce, if this actually happened in a DC comic, you'd just be setting your timer as to how long it would take for Bruce to come back. In this continuity, because I was freed up of any obligation to bring him back in any way, it's a permanent death. He can actually be properly dead, and for that to have a huge impact on this universe. I thought that was massively important. I actually, at this point, have no plans to magically resurrect Bruce from the grave. And I thank you for it. Because death should mean something. Alfred ain't coming back, and neither is Bruce. It is the kind of thing that keeps me from getting into comics very far. Because I'll, I'll see. Like, I love a lot of the comic book superhero films, and it leads me to think oh, I should really try reading some comics again. And I'll find one or two stories and enjoy them. But then I'll like go to a wiki page and I'll start seeing like Earth Two parallel and like died temporarily and stuff like that. I was like, oh, this again, yeah. and I and I leave. So. uh uh, ultimately, like with, permanence helps, I think. Like with pets, comic books are supposed to teach us and, and get us to understand and deal with death. It's very important. And so that's kind of a meta. I hadn't even thought about this, but there's a meta message in here about dealing with death. The fact that Bruce didn't as a child and that children who read DC comics might have that notion of death hampered for them by the fact that these guys keep coming back. Because nothing sells books more than a character coming back. However, on that note, Jesus. <laughs> and on that bombshell. <laughs> hey, you stole my line, which I stole. So the next scene where Batman decides he is definitely going to hang up the cowl and he's definitely going to give it to Tim, the music I used was the main theme from The Thin Red Line, which is by Hans Zimmer, and I wanted to get a 
big theme here because it is a huge thing that he's actually coming to terms with at this point. So even though it's just a quiet conversation, huge cogs are turning in the DC universe at this stage. And it's this incredible piece of evocative, just summing up everything about what a soldier will do to sacrifice his life for other people. It needed to feel like something out of the Dark Knight trilogy. But I didn't just want to use music from the Dark Knight trilogy, so I used this. And then Comic-Con came along, and the same damn piece of music, which I haven't heard since 1997, was used in the Man of Steel trailer. Which came out like two days before this. So, cheers! Fucking Zack Snyder. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> but I would like to say, folks, I got there first. Uh, anyway, that wasn't the one, the main um, piece of music that's for the general release trailer. That one, they pinched the music from Lord of the Rings after Gandalf dies. Uh, so, and that's even less appropriate. It's a baffling decision. Yeah, it was like, wow, Gandalf's dead, and yet Superman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's, uh, the, the trailer has me excited, especially the one with uh, the, the Comic-Con one, which they quickly revoked, because uh, it has a lot more interesting footage in it, like Superman being flung into a building. Yeah, Which, as like, you all know, is what I'm all about in comics. It's like, you know, use, I mean, there's lots of music that gets used for a lot of trailers because it's from a movie nobody remembers and it was a good theme, but like, this is like using the Indiana Jones theme in something. Like, people remember Lord of the Rings and what it sounds like. That is very true, actually. Yeah. Well, whichever, I can't remember which movie it was that used the Stargate theme. And actually, uh, if you want to talk about inappropriate music, although only $30 million worth of people saw this film, the main theme from Sunshine was used in the trailer for the Wolverine movie, which was false advertising because it made me super emotional over a film which turned out to be utter crap. Sunshine theme kind of gets used a lot in trailers. You know I'm using the music from Sunshine in this. I did not want to use that theme because of Good that call. very reason. The, Sunshine, the main Sunshine theme is overused. It is. But so I, I went for earlier stuff and later stuff from the production. Okay, so there is a subtle implication there where Bruce is talking about what he might do with the rest of his life. He, there's a person he's thinking about asking to travel the world with him. And I wanted to write it so that you'd be thinking, oh, God, is he going to ask Jennifer? Yeah, it did feel that way. And I wanted it to be very unspoken between them. There is an attraction there. But Bruce is trying to keep it as professional as possible, as so is she. Even though she probably actually would have said yes, he doesn't ask her. He goes to Catwoman, which actually, in retrospect, is kind of a disappointing decision. <laughs> well, he was hardly going to go to Talia, was he? Can I just say something from the point of view of my take on... Oh, would she have said no? She's professional. She would not leave with one of her patients. Are you telling the writer that she would have said no? <laughs> yes, I am. Chase <laughs> <laughs> Meridian. Hey, there I, is... I was sat there saying she wasn't scared of the Joker, and you're going, no, she really is. <laughs> there is a point of contention, it would appear, folks. So you vote on it. Which would she have done? I, I love the way that you delivered it. When, uh, when And he says, she'd probably say no. Well, that's her loss. Jennifer. Yes. It's amazing how there are so many like light, funny little moments in this whole otherwise extremely emotionally torrid, depressing, tragic story. Well, that's life, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, not that I'm saying that everybody's life is extremely tragic and depressing, but, you know, bad things happen in life, and every now and again, in the middle of the bad things, something happens that makes you laugh so hard you wet yourself. This is why it's called gallows humour. Indeed. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I, just, I figured it was important along the way to just write occasional lines that I thought would just lighten the mood, and I think I kind of hopefully balanced it. And on to Barbara, where Bruce talks to Oracle. Again, this was the best performance from Leah for, for the uh, whole show, because she had to really get to the, the meat of the character. Now, I didn't know this until I'd really talked to David, but there is a lot of tension between Barbara and Bruce. I hadn't really got it from what I'd read of them, but all of that stuff about, you know, I trample on your tactics and battle plans, that is all things that David had inferred and said, okay, right, yeah, you're going to need to not make this just a pally. Hey, you know, you do a good job. Thanks, Bruce. I'll see you later. It it had to be Bruce apologising for being such a dick for all these years. Something occurred to me, actually, about this scene. Normally one talks to an oracle to get information about the future. Everything he discusses with her is about the past, and I thought that was really intriguing. The, I am glad you wrote it that way, though, because it, it does feel very genuine. Kind of like we're, we're on the same team, but, but uh, thank you for putting up with me all these years. <laughs> Sharon, can you relate to that? I don't know what you're talking about. Need <laughs> <laughs> the fifth. Um... Yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah, you know that thing where a, a wife can't be forced to testify against her own husband. <laughs> Clearly, this is me exercising a lot of demons as well. But I'm, I'm, a, I, I would put myself more in the Tony Stark camp than the Bruce Wayne camp. But uh, I'm a hard man to live with and to uh, have to deal with a lot of the time. So that's yeah. true. But the gains are worth it. And Leah's had to deal with a lot of my shit as well. So I suppose somewhere on some level, I was trying to kind of apologise to her for all of that crap. The point where Bruce references her... Uh, no, she references her early uh, adventure as Batgirl is directly out of the comics. And that was as a direct result of the Adam West show. This Batgirl was introduced to the comics because of the Barbara Gordon in that show. Killer Moth really did kidnap Batman, although he actually kidnapped Bruce Wayne. And Batgirl saved him. And he really did say, you shouldn't be a crime fighter, you're a girl. It was a different time back then, as Batman said. You weren't trained. And I was referencing at this point some of the more embarrassing aspects of uh, Batman's past. I was borderline considering Quiet or Papa Spank oh, God, in some no. reference. But I thought, no, that will descend into Foss. If anyone was going to talk about it, it would be Joker. And he's already done that in... Um, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker and Harley's already done that in Arkham Asylum so that's maybe one too many Papa Spanks there's a really wonderful point where um, Bruce says you're everything I could want in a soldier again I was hoping that people would infer from that that he might have been saying daughter but just couldn't yeah I felt that I asked David, he has to give her a gift, something really heartfelt and genuine. What could he give her? And this was over Twitter. And by the time David responded, I was like, right, he's giving her a picture of... And this was one of the most impossible lines for me to deliver in the entire production. What's this picture of? You, me and Dick. (laughs) Which... That's your own fault. Yeah, well, I wrote it, so apologies. But, um, But I think I managed to deliver it in a way that wasn't focusing on the dick. Yeah, I just thought that that would be nice that he could sh- just remind her of like her earlier times. She should, of course, have put photos like this around the place anyway, but ultimately it's just something nice of the notion that maybe she hasn't seen this picture since that day, or maybe never saw this picture. And so he's gotten that for her, which is something really that no one else could have given her. And then the Pennyworth Blue Roses was what 
David suggested. I've never even heard of these. These are a type of flowers that Alfred actually cultivated and grew himself. They exist nowhere else in the world. These were his. I love the line, one of his greatest creations, and then Oracle comes back with one of them, and then we just leave it at that, because that's... It just shows sort of a, that there is a genuine respect and affection there, but she has to cram it down there, because there is so much on top of that. I did toy with the idea of Bruce giving her the roses potted, because a bouquet would eventually die, diminishing the world's supply of Pennyworth blues. But since this story is about the acceptance of death, I stayed with the symbolism of fragile beauty on Earth for a limited time. This lovely piece of piano music I decided would be Oracle's theme. It's from X-Men First Class and underpins the similarly troubled Raven Darkhome, incidentally played by Jennifer Lawrence who would make a cracking Barbara Gordon. Leah was one of my first casting choices because her natural voice has exactly the right intonation for the character. She was one of the few who managed nearly all of her lines in one take. At the time, she was immensely frustrated and stressed about her car requiring expensive maintenance, and she used that controlled emotion to masterful effect. And also, we reference uh, in this scene the killing joke, the point where Joker put her in this chair, and I kind of just wanted to... I foreshadowed Joker twice in this by saying he killed Jason and he put uh, Barbara in the chair, which is actually a trick straight out of Hush. If you remember, they actually... At the point where Bruce is strangling the Joker, he's thinking of reasons why he should just kill him at this stage. And those two come up as major reasons. One major Batman character who is absent from this production. Anyone? Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. And that was a conscious decision because he only turns up for a little bit in Hush and he's already off the force at that point and he's not in Under the Red Hood. I didn't know where Jim was at this point in continuity and I frankly didn't really want to get into it because I think at this stage... That is a side of Batman's business angle that he doesn't really want to have to deal with. Now, if Gordon himself is not dealing directly with Batman, then he doesn't have to address him. I think he probably planned to go and talk to him as Bruce after the events of the actual show, but never got the chance. But there's always the sequel. And I was going to say, he is definitely going to be in any sequels, I do. The next scene is Tim and the Batcave. Did anyone recognise the soundtrack for this moment. It's actually Limbo. Really? Seriously. It's uh, it's a, a piece of music called Mirage, and I just wanted to go for a piece of music that was just ambience, and that had a kind of a real ethereal, but foreboding, but large, roomy kind of ruinous quality to it and I, I combined it with these sounds that apparently emanate from a specific cave in Tibet which I thought would tie in neatly with Batman's origins in Batman Begins So all of that stuff, rather than just going for just a cave ambience, I went for the most freaky sounding cave in the world and limbo and just blended them together to give it a sense of roominess. And I was going to have our voices echo, but it actually was really distracting. So I just had it feel more immediate, like we were just right there. Yeah, I can imagine. 
Although I do add bats at one point when you say, I hope it's one of the cars. Uh, which is, by the way, the funniest and best delivered line in the entire show. <laughs> um, and when Bruce says, it's all of them, I put in the bat noise so that it would make people visualize the bat cave, boom, cr- you know, zoom all the way out. And like, all of these cars lined up like in hush. And just sort of bats swooping around the ceiling and just this immensity of what Tim is suddenly being handed. I've decided to give you something. Man, I hope it's one of the cars. It's all of the cars. The whole cave. That bit worked. You do kind of feel the space with that sound effect. Cool. And again, the, uh, the, the you, you came across perfectly in that scene. How was that one for you? That one was one of the easier ones. I think my general trend, I was... And it might have been because I, in preparing for it, was trying to find as much about uh, Tim as I could and found lots of kind of animated series and stuff like that where he's really young and he's kind of lighthearted and like Batman will just as often as not tell him to go home and do his homework or something. So I kind of was a little bit more lighthearted, I think, and or just more joking uh, in a lot of my deliveries. So uh, fortunately you directed me away from that and back to where things were actually supposed to be. Well, I mean, there was still lightness there, and it's important to note the change between Tim here and Tim in the last scene. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he's being handed this, and I wanted it to feel like he was totally not ready for it, but he wanted to be ready. And you put that across superbly. Oh, thank you. I also referenced the point where Bruce says that in years from now you're going to have to find a replacement. I was hopefully subtly at this point uh, implicating Terry McGuinness the notion that now Tim would be holding the fort until Terry McGuinness was the right age. Interestingly enough, the Drake version of Batman, I wanted to actually have many qualities of uh, Terry McGuinness Batman anyway. One of the major uh, connection points being the great big red bat on their chest. The next scene is the Catwoman on top of the bridge scene with Cassandra Corgard from the most popular girls on the internet as Catwoman. Now, I put this one in, uh, like I say, relatively close to the end because I wanted Bruce to have something and someone to go off and share a new life with so that he would commit to this I like the idea of their romance in Hush and with Catwoman turning up in The Dark Knight Rises and you know we all know how that one finished the notion that Bruce could maybe share uh, retirement if you will with, with Catwoman now the interesting thing was that both me and David agreed that Catwoman given enough time to think about it would probably actually say no so we decided to leave it as a case of he proposes to her and says just go away and think about it so it's sort of left up in the air and as I wrote Catwoman I tried to write her in a kind of a Joss Whedon-ish kind of fun way and everything she says is sarcastic and sardonic and she's making fun of Batman and she's a point of um, levity just before the big plunge she's incredibly cute and, and played funny and warm and I, I really kind of like the way that Sassy played her she, she is my favourite Catwoman to date and that's not just me polishing my own knob regarding the writing she really pulled that one off this is so romantic the view, the lights, the 300-foot drop. I could have asked you to a restaurant, but I decided we had to be standing in our suits for you to make this decision. In fact... Oh, my. (laughs) I know. Okay, so whenever I read that, I hear a zipper going down before the oh, my. But go ahead. (laughs) Is that too much? Batman pulls something from his cloak. 
Zoop. Oh so my. Sorry. Okay, serious. Do you want me to do it? Is that too over the top or? No, okay. no, it's fine. I'm going to have to basically put in like a little sound effect of me pulling out a ring box. I think I have one and opening it up just so people know that I am not pulling out the old bat schlong. Okay, right. <laughs> <sighs> and then you say, don't drop this. That's funny too, but go okay, ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> serious. Okay, okay. Go serious. She's not a massively complex character. Now, interestingly enough, if there is a sequel, she will play into that, which will allow me to write a complex Catwoman who is affected by these events, which is quite exciting, just thinking about that. Oh, my. And the music, anyone recognize the music on this one? <laughs> it's from Sin City. Hmm. It was, I just wanted some filthy sax to play over her. <laughs> I said sax. And it's, it's from the, the Dwight storyline, the big fat kill. So it's, it's um, the old town music and it's the tar pit music. Uh, and it's, it's very much t- twinned in with these Frank Miller um, super tough, let's face it, whores. Pretty much everyone that Frank Miller writes who's a female is a super tough whore, possibly apart from Carrie Kelly. I, well, and the other thing is, of course, in Batman Year One, the implication is that Selina Kyle started out as a prostitute, and I just thought, right, well, we will reference that and kind of give her this kind of little bit slutty kind of theme tune to uh, to her here. I'm not massively proud of that, but I did kind of want to make it kind of a, a, a light-hearted noir at that point, and I think that works. Oh, and I love her line about. So, who's going to take over the cape and cowl if we skip town? Big Bird or Tweety Pie? Originally, when I'd written it, it was supposed to be Big Bird or the one who, oh, whose voice only broke last week. But Sassy called me on that one and said, that is such a clumsy line, and made me think about it and said, okay, right, we've got a Big Bird, who's a Small Bird? And I thought, well, reference a Warner Brothers property, Tweety Pie. So I thought, yes, Big Robin, <laughs> Little Robin. <laughs> I did like that line. That was a good yeah. line. Speaking as Big Bird, I did like that line. <laughs> And also, it's neat because um, Catwoman would have particular disdain for Tweety Pie because he is consistently um, hounded by a cat. (laughs) Just just the notion that, from her point of view, he just couldn't intimidate the way that Batman can. He's not up to the job, but frankly, neither is Big Bird either. That will probably be a fun relationship down the line. Yeah, uh, I mean, well, it depends on what I do with uh, with more complex Catwoman because I think I might yeah. want to set out and actually uh, like a Selina Kyle who's actually kind of broken after this. Because I mean, no one else is gonna. So I think it's up to me. This is a, a comment from Catatonic Gnarly. Alex, can you clarify something? Did you do the voice of Joker? I assume you did, although you didn't mention it in the cast list. Or did you somehow patch it together from audio clips of Mark Hamill's Joker? If you did it, then you absolutely nailed it. The voice almost sounds too perfect. Thank you, Nali. I didn't put Joker on the cast list because I, when he turned up, I wanted everyone to go, oh, shit. And I don't know if that affected, because you guys obviously knew what was going to happen, so you, you, everyone's going to have to tell me whether they, they had that sort of feeling. But the fact that he wasn't flagged at any point in the cast list, I kind of wanted it to be an, oh, no, this is going to ruin everything moment. But also, like, fascinated as to what Joker's reaction was going to be. This is one of my favorite scenes, by the way. Thank you. 
again I've gone for music from sunshine this is distortions this is the bit where they actually hit the sun and time and space start to merge into one another so everything is distorted and horrible and backwards I didn't want to just go for, I certainly didn't want to go for Dark Knight sounds because that's not that Joker and I didn't want to go for like just what the Mark Hamill Jokers kind of had in the past the kind of I couldn't use any of Shirley Walker's score it's just not the right tone uh, Shirley Walker is fantastic for the animated series but I was trying to um, do something that was actually it felt much more real and close to the Nolan films so yeah I, I went for Sunshine I, I just wanted the Joker to sound like he was broken and backwards and twisted and there's actually a really neat bit at the point when he's actually listening to who Batman really is and then he starts going no I actually played the beautiful dreamer piece of music from Tim Burton's Batman backwards at that stage underneath the the chaotic mess of the um, sunshine music love the slight hint of narcissism that the character has in this scene where just his utter disbelief at having not been paid attention to this entire time without like, consulting me yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> just like the, i love the little the tiny little disbelief the little what <laughs> the little sounds you make when he just when he hears of bruce retiring it's like nobody told me about this why yeah. it's it's well, what, why it's isn't be, anyone paying attention to me? It's being ignored, which is the one thing that we've we've been saying in these podcasts, is the one thing Joker loathes. Uh, it, it just makes him feel unimportant. Yeah. There's oh, there's one bit where um, Bruce says, "I'm going to tell you who I am," and Joker actually turns off the recording and goes, "Steady on, old boy. This is exactly what we want." And he's, he's, he's talking to himself at this stage. He kind of has to. The reason Harley Quinn exists in the animated series is so that the Joker isn't just talking to himself the whole time and sounding like a nutcase. He's a different kind of nutcase. He is a little golem at that point. Yeah. I don't know what... I, I, there's some slight British anachronism in there with the Joker, but he, Hamill occasionally does that anyway, which, it, which I think really works. And yeah, he uses antiquated phrases. I think the, the one line I had to get to really nail getting the Hamill thing is that... We'll find out what's up with our dear old pal Batman. Get that sense of camaraderie at that point. There's one episode of um, the animated series where... Joker believes that Batman has been shot by some two-bit hood and he eulogizes Batman at that point. So I kind of, I wanted that to influence this as well. Dear friends, today is the day the clown cried. And he cries not for the passing of one man, but for the death of a dream. 
the dream that he would someday taste the ultimate victory over his hated enemy. For it was the Batman who made me the happy soul I am today. How I agonized over the perfect way to thank him for that. Perhaps with a cyanide pie in the face. Or an exploding whoopee cushion playfully planted in the Batmobile. But those dreams were dashed by the weasley little gunsel sitting there in our midst. The cowardly, insignificant Garnet who probably got lucky when Batman slipped on the slime trail this loser left behind him. This mound of diseased hyena filth who's not fit to lick the dirt from my spats! But I digress. And, you know, as we've been saying for all of these podcasts, when people read the Joker in comics, they hear Mark Hamill's voice. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do the Joker, it's got to be him. I mean, up to uh, six, seven months ago, I wasn't that good at doing the Mark Hamill Joker, but I've been trying and trying and trying since watching a lot of the animated series to get... I think, ultimately, what playing the Arkham games really kind of got me onto just sort of hearing his voice and then sort of imitating it back. I have quite a good... I, 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 I'm not that good at coming up with voices on, on my own. I am a much better mimic than I am a creator. That's kind of one of the great big tragedies of me, actually. Well, to be fair, it's something anyone who's done the voice acting for this, this episode found out. It's not yeah. that easy. It turns Sweet. out voice acting is actually pretty hard. Yeah, you would have thunk it. But apparently so. Um, I love the fact that he references Nancy Drew and calls her the second greatest detective. <laughs> the world's second greatest detective. Which, of course, frankly, it should be Sherlock Holmes, but... Uh, or Scooby. Yeah. Or Scooby. Oh. Hang on, I'm going to run a Google search and see if Nancy Drew and Joker is a fanfic that has been written anywhere oh yet. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> read that. If it oh, hasn't, you, there's your sequel. Do you know what the hardest thing about doing Joker was? For either one. The laugh? The laugh. God damn it. I challenge anyone to do a really good Joker laugh off the bat. You have to work yourself up to that. You have to start low and then sort of basically whip yourself into a frenzy. It took me ages and I scared the shit out of Lyra. Daddy. Yo. You sound weird. Yeah, I'm doing a bad person's voice. Mm. <laughs> but it's tough because, I mean, ultimately, when I just kept howling with laughter, I was like, that's way over the top. I can't put that in. But ultimately, my, you know, the, the, the laughs with the, that were the least awful made their way in there. As well as the Hamill joke, I did put a couple of little... Nicholson notes in there. The the bit when he goes through the drawer and goes crap, crap, crap. <laughs> that, that that still felt like Hamill though to me. Well, yeah, I mean it's, it's the sort of thing Hamill's Joker would say. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it's a direct quote from uh, the Burton Batman. Um, the bit where he says to Batman in, in Wayne Manor, "No theatrics, no costumes, no toys. Just get those wonderful." And, of course, the beautiful dreamer bit, which was so hidden that no one's mentioned it. Also, as Jason leaves after becoming the new Joker, he mutters, See you around. Which was a reference to the scene where Burton envisaged a young Joker killing Bruce's parents. This is another one where I had to act against Sharon, and... Acting against Sharon while I'm pretending to be the Joker is completely different to pretending to be Bruce. I don't know how off-putting I was. Was I very off-putting, Sharon? Um, 
as such, it was very frustrating, though, because I don't know whether it was sort of an instinctive thing or whether I genuinely felt that that's how the character would do it, but this is where I started to have the problems with, with getting across what Whitman's actual feelings were. Mm. Um, the more you ramped it up, the more I wanted to bring her down to counterbalance it. Um, which of course doesn't work on which, audio because you just no, sound like a mouse. There's nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you were you were constantly sort of trying to get more out of me. In the end, and I can't. I don't know if I told you this before, but it got to the point where you wanted me to cry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just got so frustrated with my performance by that point. That is the main place where the tears were coming from. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, no, no. It's, it's not. Well, it, it it got the impact. It got the effect, but it was just. It, it, I got to the point of I'm never going to get this right. I'm never going to get this to fit, and um, and that combined with obviously all the emotions that were were flying around the scene anyway, just sort of tipped me over the edge. So it was the it was, you know, a good tool, but it, it was hard work. That scene was hard work. Yeah, this next scene uh, it's far longer. It's almost nine times longer than the first scene where I talked to Jason. It's, it's like 11 minutes. And it, we just did it all the way through. Just one take. This was like the first day of recording. I thought, if we get this one done and out of the way, that is the big one. And I was really pleased with the way it turned out in the end. I mean, we had to go back and, and I had to read up pretty much every single one of my Bruce lines and most of my Joker lines and then your lines. But the framework was all good. <laughs> But the showdown is so important because ultimately the Joker feels cheated out of a final confrontation with Batman. Batman doesn't want a final confrontation with Joker, but if he's going to have one, he's going, well, Batman, Bruce. He is now Bruce Wayne. There is no Batman anymore. He is just going to kill the Joker because his relationship with death has changed. What holds him back is a Pavlovian response to death rooted in that of his parents. But that's also intertwined in the assertion that if he kills just one person, even for the right reasons, that he will never be able to stop. That's why it's his one rule. My contention is that if you unwound this anxiety from his relationship with death and Bruce was convinced that he could no longer be Batman and thus not be put in this position any longer, that he could in fact resolve to just kill Joker and be done with it. The one huge hump that Bruce has had to get over. However, I ran into a brick wall with um, David because ultimately if Batman kills and really does kill, then that will upset Batman fans everywhere. They'll go, no, no, not buying this, no. Apparently, you can do it in, in The Dark Knight Returns, but no other place. He's not allowed to kill. Or oh, apparently, you can do it in various films. <laughs> you can only yeah. it Tim Burton, yeah. and then you get yelled at. But not in comics, death. not in something that's supposed to be authentic. So what I had to do was have Bruce very prepared to kill the Joker, but not be given the full final chance. In my original script, he, was he just strangled the Joker to death. That was the, your original was idea. Was he was really gonna, chilling? Yeah, Joker, he was going to strangle him, and Joker was going to shoot him. And yeah, and Joker shoots him three times in the chest while he's strangling Joker to death, and then they both die. And that was supposed to be it. No Jason at all. And I am so pleased that David helped me rewrite this whole thing. It makes it far more dramatic and far less just straightforward, horrible, chilling double murder. It's, it's more complex. The problem is, it wasn't entirely clear exactly what was happening to a lot of people. Some people thought that Bruce had shot Joker, and that Joker was just dying, and, and then just 
died and, and that's actually what had happened. That's not what happened. Joker put the gun in his mouth and in a bid to have a final amount of control, he killed himself because he was like, what, if, you, if the bat really isn't coming out, I am not going to be killed by this guy. You want to see something really funny? Oh, God. Is he? Is he dead? No. Not yet. Gotcha. Now he's dead. But here's the interesting thing. That is an act of supreme control. And the Joker is supposed to be all about chaos, so it's contrary to his character. I do honestly believe, though, that if the Joker felt he was getting old and wanted a final confrontation with Bruce, but felt that the one way he could really get to Bruce after that was to just take that away from him, and at the same time keep his own death to himself... It's the Donnie Darko thing. Every living creature on this earth dies alone. The Joker at that point was like, no, enough of all these people. And just checked out on his own, which was, I think, very important to the character. I had to give both Bruce and the Joker the power in that scenario. Because if Joker just kills Bruce, then that completely weakens Batman. And if Batman just kills Joker, that completely weakens Joker. So it's... It's a, a trade-off. I think it does emphasise um, Joker's thing about having to be... Although, yes, he is an advocate of chaos, he wants almost to be the vortex of the chaos. He wants to be the thing around which all this chaos swirls. If he can't instigate Batman to do you know, the, the chaotic thing... And, and he's only going to get Bruce, which he doesn't want. Bruce bores him, and he's not interested in, in having that particular battle. It's almost like he's making himself the centre of things again by saying, right, here you go, there's a situation that I've now killed myself. What I think what he's thinking of is the aftermath, yeah. which is ironic because he's not going to see it. But I think that's what he's trying to, to kick off, is, is some kind of chaotic situation that will then convolute around him. And one thing that I thought was really fascinating about the way you played Jason in this is that you, you, you look at some of the little comments that he comes out with. He, like the Joker, sees himself at the centre of everything. His assumption is that Bruce will hand over the cowl to him, even though he knows he's already been the Red Hood in this. He knows Bruce doesn't trust him anymore. Yet his assumption is that he will still be the automatic successor uh, to the Batman role. And when it comes to, to when he appears in this scene, he is seeing things all about how they um, circulate around him, that Bruce was going to go and take out the Joker because of, of him. And yeah. obviously that's the whole thing behind the whole Red Hood saga um, but it, the way you played that out I thought worked fantastically well and then of course the logical conclusion to that is that he takes over the Joker role because it's, it's almost as though that space has now been left for him to fill and that's what he wants, a space to fill Before he dies the Joker does uh, give a throwaway line of the whole thing got a bit touchy-feely which I thought was important that I noted that this is the most emo Batman I have ever heard <laughs> and I wanted to just admit yeah folks 
Sorry about this. Bear with me. There is some gritty stuff coming up just in a second. I referenced it directly, and then I made it part of a cheap joke about the the Joker molesting the poor doctor in the car, which I think is important because ultimately, otherwise, I'm going to get labelled as the pussy Batman. But yeah, the, the notion that the Joker would have extreme distaste for everything that had gone on before this because he doesn't understand emotion. He can't. He can't get with people, and he he doesn't understand the the nature of of this kind of sacrifice and toll. The music for this scene is, I can't even say the name of the track because it's actually a spoiler of something that happens in Sunshine. It's Something Death Part 1. So yeah, during this whole Joker uh, showdown between uh, Batman and Joker, I'm referencing like the pure works of these characters going at loggerheads with each other. Very specifically three. Killing Joke, The Dark Knight Returns, and Arkham City. Now whatever your personal feelings are on The Dark Knight Returns, there is no doubt in saying that the clash between the Joker and Batman at the end is somewhat epic huge things happen there because the Batman actually pretty just murders Joker and it's the one time that he's allowed to do that because it's just it's the end of all things and uh, killing joke there is the notion that they will keep doing this again and again and again until one of them kills the other that's what Joker's referring to when he says you know he and I have a sort of understanding they've never specifically stated this but it is an understanding between the two of them that one of them is going to go by the other's hand and Arkham City I can't actually spoil what happens at the end because it is still too close to the time, but pretty huge things happen at the end of Arkham City. If you finish the game, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So that was one of the things that, completing it recently, made me think, you know what, I could do this, and it'll actually feel real. That was the best part of the game for me. The point where the Joker kills himself, I wanted to reference the, the bit in Return of the Joker where he says, that's not funny, that's not funny at all, after Tim shoots him, and the point in uh, Arkham City where he says, actually, that is kind of funny, saying, do you want to see something really funny? Again, it's not entirely obvious that he's blown his own brains out, but I think I wanted to get across in the speech patterns afterwards and what people were saying, what he'd done. And unfortunately, it just wasn't clear enough for enough people. The problem was, have you, any of you guys actually ever listened to the Star Wars radio plays? I've got them. I haven't quite listened to them yet. Work in progress. <laughs> They're really excellent, especially for their time. Um, there's some really great bits, but they, they do suffer from... Um, okay, the folks listening at home can't see what's going on. We shall describe it for them in painstaking detail. The worst bit for me is actually where um, Vader um, blocks Han Solo's blaster bolts in, in Cloud City, and Han goes, he blocked my blaster bolts, but no one could do that. Yeah, see, your blaster is immaterial in comparison to the power of the Force. See how it comes to my hand. No! And it's like, oh, God, no one would say that. And the exact opposite is true of the big finished Doctor Who stuff, which is why I don't get on with it, where it's it's like what you've done, the audio stuff, and no description at all. As in, so it's not clear what's going on. Sometimes it's very unclear what's going on. That's the tightrope I had to walk. It's because very hard. I, I wanted it to feel like people were saying dialogue that they would say, whether a camera was on them, whether other people were in the room or not. It just it needed to sound natural. If Jennifer had said, he killed himself, I can't believe it, it wouldn't have felt right. Yeah. So, I mean, what would you actually say if that actually had happened? Ah, here's the diaper. Answer, please. You don't have to ask twice when it comes to a meal. Greetings, Princess Leia. Captain So, it has been a long chase. Would you care to sit at my table? Thanks. <laughs> 
Oh, we can't let him take us. He won't. So long, baby! Nobody stops a blaster bolt with his hand. Helen, it's no good. As you well know, Princess Leia. So long. I weary of this. You won't be needing your precious weapon ever again. Watch. It flies to me. You see, firearms are of no consequence to me. So uh, ultimately the whole, oh God, is he dead, would seem to be the only thing that I actually felt would actually work at that point. And the fact that the Joker goes, <laughs> gotcha, after that, implies that he had the measure of power at that stage. Mm. But again, it wasn't entirely clear. And also the line, everyone wants you to do it, I, I just kind of tapped into the notion that Joker is almost breaking the fourth wall at this point and saying, look, everyone listening at home would like you to kill me, please. Everyone wants you to do it could apply to everyone else in the Bat family and in Gotham. I wanted it to be kind of an ambiguous line. That, that is a better way of doing it, yeah. Oh, and when Bruce says Jack, can I call you Jack, he's referring to an old alias of Joker's, Jack White, but also Jack Napier in uh, the uh, Burton Batman, which I thought was a nice way of saying Bruce going, look, let's just cut the bullshit, we'll take off our masks, my name is Bruce, you're Jack, which drove the Joker nuts. After that, after the Joker kills himself, the uh, music goes to Thoughts of Marie from the Bourne Ultimatum. I hadn't used any other Bourne music before then, but I wanted something that was very reflective and felt like it could actually round up the scene. So it's like, right, okay, Bruce has been shot, but he's going to survive. Joker's dead. We're going to get through this. And I wanted to sort of give people just an ounce of hope that maybe you know, this thing would continue before having it all wrenched away from them. I'm like Bane in that regard. You bastard. I'm sorry. At this point, Bruce was lung shot, so I had to keep wheezing throughout all of my um, my takes and, and recording a lot of uh, you know extra lines of me sort of breathing, and I became very aware of, uh, for this point, and only this point in the uh, production, there's a lot of breathing going on. I was going to ask you about that, actually. Did you Do you find that quite distracting to, when you're actually editing it to have to sort of layer yourself on yourself on yourself? If it went quiet for a second, I was like, right, why has Bruce stopped breathing? What's he paying attention to? Mm. Okay, that's fair enough. It, it's really easy to just, just wheeze for 10 seconds and then stick that on there, but it's important to note at what point he's wheezing because he's been lung shot and at what point he's actually death rattling because he's been shot in the heart. Can't just have generic wheezing. Generic wheezing is our wheezer cover band. Right, so then Jason comes in again, and I... I, I had to set him up from the earlier scene. There's still, I'm still running the risk of people who don't know quite who this guy is. Going, hang on, who is this guy? How's he at the, the uh, Wayne Manor at this stage? The music around this stage is again from Layer Cake, and it's Aria. You're born. You take shit. Get out in the world. You take more shit. Climb a little higher. Take less shit. Till one day you're up in the rarefied atmosphere. And you've forgotten what shit even looks like. Welcome to the layer cake, son. It's a wonderful, wonderful, mournful funeral dirge sung by Lisa Gerrard, who has provided music for Gladiator, The Insider. Heat, Black Hawk Down, Ali, Man on Fire. She has a heartbreaking operatic style you can't help but get swept up in. This music in Layer Cake is sadder than it has any right to be, considering the actual story. 
and as you said, uh, Jason makes the whole scenario about him because he is already tripped over into becoming sociopathic. The, the Joker dying was one of his major triggers, but the absolute snubbing by Batman that you will never be Batman and the being pushed aside is what sends him over the edge. And he's actually come close to, to killing Batman uh, in, in uh, Under the Red Hood. Uh, so I just figured that this would be the time when it's like, right, you know, this, there's no coming back from this, and he's become an out-and-out -out villain. And not just a villain, but the arch-nemesis of Batman. Dan, you were going to ask about the sound effects. Yes, I was curious how you created the uh, nightmarish sound effects for uh, the Ooh. new Joker's transformation. Ooh. I'm um, sure I'm not the only person who won who's curious. Celery. <laughs> I just put took a couple of sticks of celery, put them close to the uh, mic, and just went, and then just tore them very slowly apart. Ah, uh, the vegetable of pain. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then overlaid it with my own grunts of pain. The knife coming out was just a, a knife scraped against a knife sharpener. And uh, it's still not entirely obvious to a lot of people what he's doing. A lot of people think he's cutting off the Joker's face, which... I don't know, just watching The Dark Knight several times... You want to know how I got these scars? I couldn't see how anyone would, would not immediately think, Oh my God, this is how I got these scars. I didn't want to make it immediately obvious. It might have sounded like he was doing something terrible to Bruce, but I had to layer in um, Bruce going, Jason, please stop, in a way that he would be far more panicked were Jason actually cutting him. I suppose Jason could have cut off his face, but that's much more of a sort of Hannibal Lecter thing to do. Strange enough, it did just recently happen in the comics. At least this man knew who he was. What are you doing? Jason. No. Please stop this. Ah. All better. How do I look? You. You'll never be him. Well, no, the, the idea is basically that, jo uh, that Jason is now disfiguring himself to make his face approximate a strong character that he is now identifying himself with. It's like he has now had to abandon the whole Batman-Robin persona and take on the mantle of the Joker. And it's, it's a baptism of blood. I will be interested if this world contains a what you do with Harley Quinn. She's in it. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I think that's going to be interesting. Yeah. I was somewhat disappointed with Harley Quinn's revenge. Let's see, shall we? After Jason shoots Batman um, there's a very very quiet bit where he gets in very very close and goes no it's okay it's okay which is something Heath Ledger does in in the Dark Knight when he's frightening the crap out of that uh, fake Batman he goes look at me and then he goes which is like super creepy but very very quietly if you listen very carefully he's going it's okay it's okay I forgive you Which I just wanted to put in there. In his mind, Jason has said, right, you and I are even now. You know, you let me die. Joker dealt with himself. 
You've snubbed me, I kill you, we're even. I forgive you for all of this stuff. Now I'm going to get on with my life. Which, of course, he's not, because he's entirely consumed with everything horrible that's ever happened to him. That was very unnerving. When you recorded that bit. It was ad-libbed, wasn't it? Mm. Um, it wasn't in the script, so I wasn't expecting it. And it was, it was just, it was very intense. And when Jennifer asks him what he did... Uh, and he says the wrong thing. It's he and Batman and all of Batman's Bat family have spent their entire lives trying to do the right thing. And at this point, he's accepted that doing the wrong thing is something he can pursue from now on. And that killing Bruce is the wrong thing of to end all wrong things. I think that's part of the tragedy of Jason, though, because he's, he's he is told he is the bad son. And... As a result, he takes on the role of being the bad son. Mm. And I, I don't think that's what he wanted. I don't think that's who, you know, he didn't set out to be that from the word go. I mean, in a way, the scene earlier on with Jason where um, Bruce basically tells him that he will never be Batman, I, I kind of wanted to shake him and say, but don't talk to him like that because all you're doing is reinforcing his notion that the, you know, the bad son is all he can be. As far as Bruce is concerned, he's told him on no uncertain terms it's not going to happen, and he's trying to get it across to him. At this point, he's worried about Jason, but he doesn't believe that Jason is capable of doing what he's about to do. He's just trying to get it into what he considers to be Jason's thick skull, Mm. and it's a a fatal mistake. And then Bruce dies, which is a really emotional moment, and um, Dale always gets to me whenever I have to re-listen to it. Here is the huge, important, crucial thing. In challenging the Joker barehanded while the Joker has a pistol, Bruce takes on the mantle of his father and recreates the scenario in Crime Alley, but goes out of his way to act where his father did not act. In various versions of it, Thomas Wayne has jumped in front of Martha Wayne as a shield, a useless shield, to you know prevent her death for just a few seconds. But Bruce is prepared to walk into the fire to actually take down this gunman. And it's a way for Bruce to heal these neural pathways in his head, to come to terms with this, and to forgive his own father by becoming the protector father that he needed to be, and he needed to have at that point. It's key to Bruce's development, and it's just unfortunate that he then dies and is unable to enjoy that new lease of life that he would have got from that. Still good that the moment happens, though. Yeah. It's kind of got a wholeness to it. Yeah. And that was, that was hugely important. And it, this all dates back to the point where I, I hadn't even really thought about this much until it happened in um, uh, Batman Begins, but when uh, Ducard says, Your parents' death was not your fault. It was your father's.
the will to act. Yield. You haven't beaten me. You've sacrificed sure footing for a killing stroke. And Bruce reacts overly defensively at that point that he has been harboring this resentment to his father and it's never spoken of again, but I wanted to reference it here. That Thomas Wayne did not act and he should have done. You could also read into it the fact that Bruce does what his father didn't enact and it still ends up the same way as well. Yeah, but I think ultimately if his father had done that and it still ended up the same way, then at least Bruce would have thought to himself he did all that he could. Mm. But just somewhere in the back of his mind, it's when Bruce is regressing, he's saying, just hit him, Dad. As in, just do something about this. Or maybe, just Bruce's father would have died, but not his mother, leaving Bruce with one parent. But it's all this horrible, twisted, black little piece inside Bruce's mind that I wanted to unravel for people. Final scene. Right, so the music here is Drive to the Warehouse, which is again from Layer Cake, but it's a bit more hopeful, and it's a bit more purposeful. And it's like, right, new dawn, new day, the rain has stopped, new Batman, Tim Drake, and suddenly you got Dan, and he's got the big boy voice. (laughs) The big boy voice, eh, Dan? (laughs) So, I mean, you just sent me this as a, you know, I'm trying to do better on this. So, you know, we were going to meet, like, like on Saturday. You know, you sent me this on the Friday and and, and said, look, you know, I'm I'm trying to do a better job on this. I was like, nope, that'll do. And that, you know, you just did two takes on it, and I used pretty much everything from the second take. And it's like, wait, don't need to see you on Saturday, then that's perfect. I'm very glad it worked. That was the, this was the chapter I was most worried about. Yeah. Because I, is... I can put on a bailed Batman voice, but no one really wants a bailed Batman voice. So, and I could, and I was had the hardest time finding the middle, like, can I kind of get that sort of low growl and sort of still my regular voice at the same time? And as you heard in our first recording session, I could not. <laughs> so, Yeah. As took, it took me a while practicing and deciding to eventually kind of go for just more of a intimidating, angry, growl, kind of, just gruff kind of sound. As gruff as I can make my voice sound anyway. Gruff doesn't really sound it up, you were steely. Steely? Ooh. <laughs> Seriously, steely Dan. <laughs> <laughs> See, I did not realize that until I just said oh. steely. Okay, so this is rein this one back in yeah um this is a hugely important moment because you've got to then not only close out these decades worth of continuity that everyone's gotten used to but start up a whole new batman story and it all rested on the shoulders of you and a couple of people working with you on the team no pressure though yeah that's what everyone said i was like right you got to sell this one and um yeah, like I said, the red bat on his chest. Originally, I didn't describe the new bat costume. It was just going to be, well, let's leave it up to people to decide whether um, he's changed the costume or not. But um, Dave Hartrick said that it was important that he, that he make additions to it and, 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 and make it his own. So uh, he suggested originally a yellow bat symbol. But I changed it to a red one for several reasons. One of them to tie up with Batman Beyond. Uh, the other one because of the Robin Red, which is very important. And the other one being that it was out of respect for his fallen mentor who literally bled from his heart in that exact area. 
And uh, Jennifer, as I mentioned earlier, joins the Bat Family slash Scooby Gang in a capacity that I think should actually be really genuinely useful to, uh, you know, because beyond, they don't really have uh, a clinical psychologist or someone they can consult on that. So um, it, it puts a new twist on, on what they do. But she's also there to fill in, not to do the buttling and uh, wash Tim's underwear, but um, she's there back at the cave maintaining it and to be there for if Tim comes back in the car, falls out and desperately needs 15 stitches in his cheek after being slashed to pieces in a knife fight. It's, she, she provides vital medical support as well. The music for this next bit where Jason comes in is, of course, Why So Serious from The Dark Knight. Now, I didn't use any other Dark Knight music, and I suspect that if I do, when I do, do a follow-up, it's going to actually use a lot of Dark Knight music for that very reason, because it's about escalation, and it's about where we go from here. And I actually wanted to feel very much like The Dark Knight. But I just thought, I will do, I'll put this one bit in here. Because it is Ledger's Joker. And out of deference and reverence to his performance, I will give him his theme tune. And uh, seriously, that guy was incredible. And I did my best to pay homage to him in my voice. I think it worked out quite well. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's good giving people a cue that they instantly recognize and know as well to a... Yeah. establish what is happening here and what's going to happen yeah exactly the Mr. J thing was a, a, a sort of a last minute inspiration thing I was like right this is just what Harley calls him all the time but it ties in with the whole Jason thing which I do like you didn't have that in the first like the first recording session was actually no, a pretty no, different yeah. version of this a different yeah. version of this chapter but uh, I really like it significantly improved from draft one to two this one is one that David actually, what you read, we eventually read was draft three. David did a draft two, and then I tweaked his draft two to make a draft three. The first version I had was okay, but it was a bit limp, and it didn't really show off Tim at his best, and it didn't really show off Jason at his best, frankly, either. Between David and I, we made it far more epic, but also tie in with the various other Bat family members, and like referencing, you know, call Canary, call Onyx, call Huntress. Batgirl, the Cassandra Kane Batgirl, not the uh, Barbara Gordon Batgirl, Wildcat. <laughs> this family is huge, and even without Bruce, they can actually not only succeed, but maybe even mobilize around Tim and do things differently and actually succeed where Bruce had maybe failed before. It was actually really kind of uplifting for the ending, and I wanted it to, to, for people to be exhilarated and want, desperately want to know what happens next. On that note. And on that note, um... Oh, the music I used here, by the way, was the theme tune to Crisis 2. Because, again, it's Zimmer music, but it's Zimmer music that most people won't have heard because you have to actually not only have played the game, but finished the game, because this happens at the very, very end of that. And so it's just it's this wonderful, rousing, marching, booming, military, kind of heroic feel to it. The, the important thing was that your final monologue, Dan, had to really just sort of gather up speed and momentum and charisma, and you, you just had to be the spearhead for this campaign. And I really love the way you pulled that off in the end. Thank you. And I'm glad you used that music and showed it to me as well, because I have not played Crisis 2 and didn't even realize that Hans Zimmer contributed to it, and I really love that track now. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I, I, yes, before we actually did the, your, your first take on that, I, you know, I was like, yeah, listen to this. And then we sort of sat down and listened to it for like uh, four minutes or so. And I was like, yep, okay, I got it now. Let's go. Yeah. And the sequel, if and when I do one, or any follow-ups, I will say right now I would really like to do, 
if we were going to do pre-existing Batman stories, I think Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on Serious Earth, lends itself very well to audio because it's like a nightmare. And it would be very unsettling to listen to, but it's got fantastic, horrible dialogue and scene setting in that. And, of course, there is the one that's been requested several times, The Killing Joke, which I'll consider. But I kind of like the idea of writing my own from the point of view of the fact that people don't know what's coming. And ultimately, if you've, if you've read these stories before, then there is, there is a better way to absorb that story than just listening to my old audio play, and that's to read the comics, which are fantastic. But if I'm writing it myself off the bat, there's no other way to, to absorb it than just listen to the audio play. And, and since it's now breaking continuity and creating this whole new form of fiction, it's something that I have the rarefied opportunity to actually do. So I don't know, the, the next one will be very much like The Dark Knight and it would be all-out warfare in Gotham with the original line that David wrote for Draft 2 was he wants a war, we'll give him a war, bring it on or something along those lines and I was like, ah David, we can't make it that these Robins are going to tear Gotham apart in their desperation to, to kill each other it's got to be a case of Tim wants to stave off the war and David was very accommodating he said yep absolutely and so we managed to get a way of, of getting the war in along with the whole we are the night line which is one of my favourites and yeah we'll see I suppose if, you know the joy of going off established continuity is like you said you don't know what's going to happen anybody yeah. could die anybody could die anybody could enter into the story so um, yeah that's kind of exciting I'm going to need a few months to recover but I'll, I'll stop <laughs> playing with ideas yeah you're all battered out at the minute I think it's not so much me, it's Sharon. <laughs> Sharon, how are you with the bat? That pretty much summed it up quite well, I think. Uh, I'd, 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 it's been a very worthwhile um, progression of, of podcasts and, um, and recording sessions that we've done, but I, uh, the thing is... I, I think of myself as having quite an obsessive compulsive personality um, I am nothing in comparison to Alex and he can he can seize a theme and pursue it until it's you know its fingers are down to bloody stumps and I, just, I have a, a great deal of admiration in, in the way that he can chase an idea like that um, and I just I I try to try my best to keep up, but I just I haven't got the energy to to go as far and as fast with these things as as he does. So. Thank you. It is a compliment. <laughs> it is intended as a compliment. I I think you you do. It's quite amazing to see you take these things and and run with them and and get the the capacity and the material and the depth out of them that you do and it, I, I have an awful lot of admiration for the way that you work thank you nice to hear from you Batman so you're like basically you're a little bit kind of mocking a little bit kind of sardonic about it but I mean, you do like him mm-hmm. I was so. going to play it sexy that's okay <laughs> I'm going to be talking in like a Lance Henriksen voice as Batman <clears throat> okay are you recording yet first Oh yeah, I am. I have been, so... You might get a really good take on the first go. Yeah, it is going. Okay. It's nice to hear from you, Batman. Call me Bruce. <clears throat> Sorry. Call me Bruce. 
Ah, we're back to first term. Oh, sorry. Ah, we're back to first name terms. Now why do? Oh, God, man. Now I know why you picked a spot. I know, I know. I've been practicing. <laughs> you may have to pick out just like my lines and put them in. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been doing that with everyone. There's, there's been bits where they start off great and fluff mm-hmm. it up, and I just take like little pieces from everyone. It's fine. Okay, let's start over. Take two. Okay. okay. Chapter one, cop. Gotham City PD, on the ground, now! Okay, Batman pulled something from inside his cloak. <laughs> Tell me it's not his penis. Honestly, how many thugs are gonna notice? Will you relax? We got this sewn up. How can I help you, sir? The bat! How can I help you, sir? How can I help you, sir? <laughs> Have you turned off your air conditioning yet? Oh, shit. Oh yeah, that's definitely it. I can see the uh, the waveforms collapse. Okay, so... Oh god, sir, I'm so sorry. Lie still, you've been shot. Uh, you want that one again? Oh god, sir, I'm so what? sorry! <laughs> okay. Do Michael Caine. <laughs> I was watching the lady the whole time, and she did as you told her. <laughs> now it's the dude from fucking Windown and I again. Oh, we should do Alfred as him. That would twist things up. Man, I was watching the lady <laughs> the whole time. She did exactly what you told her. Then that would change things up a bit. That would be a radical reinterpretation. <laughs> Matt is such a good Alfred, too. He's got... I don't like this. Moy, you should have been back by now. Uh, uh! That's just like the standard scream, I think. And then he gets shot again. Oh, God! Ah, ah. No, that's rubbish. Let's try that one again. Get shot, for God's sake. Oh, God! Ah, 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 ah. And then he's saved. Oh, oh thank you! Ah. No, that's what pants again. Let's try that one again. Oh, 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 oh thank you! Ah. I want you to marry Bruce Wayne. You sound like a caveman. Okay, I'm sorry. I want you to marry me, Bruce Wayne. Again, I kind of sound like a caveman. I want you to marry Bruce Wayne, not Batman. What, ne- what next line do you want me to do? <laughs> sorry. You can just go with your amazing okay. ones. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, no. Um. <laughs> Go for it. All right. hmm. One more time. Hmm? Scooby Doo. <laughs> Bruce, you've given more than most. You deserve a break from this. Okay, you just went a little bit Minnesota soccer mom. I did, here. didn't I? Oh, given more than most, I wanted to make you some hot dish. <laughs> oh, golly gee. <laughs> What's this about? What's this about? Ah, why can't we get out? Technically, Ollie and Barry would have succeeded by the words because they died. Go again. I can barely understand you. Technically, Ollie and Barry were succeeded by the words... Ah, words. Wards. Wards. By their wards. Technically, Ollie and Barry were succeeded by their wards because they died. Eh, he's young, but I guess he'll float. Still too British, I can hear the T's. Americans don't pronounce their T's. Americans don't pronounce their T's. Americans are incontinent pillocks. Incontinent? They are no, not incontinent. Ineloquent. <laughs> 
I'm sticking with Tim. I'm sticking with Tim. I'm sticking with Tim. Uh, okay, st- I got it. Okay, yeah. cool. All right. I could keep saying I'm sticking with Tim. I will be stuck no, to Tim. You are, yeah, no, you're thoroughly stuck on Tim. <laughs> uh, la- <laughs> <laughs> Bat Boy? The knight in whining armor? Well, he's going to have to work harder on that whole imposing routine. Right now, I doubt he could browbeat Harley. He... <laughs> You're gonna have to do that again because I was laughing in the background. I was biting my hand, but just uh, just in case. So okay. like Batman is laughing, which is totally inappropriate. Okay. What are your plans? Uh, that sounds like a clingy wife. <laughs> Sorry. What are your plans? Scary. What are your plans? Robots. What are your plans? Dalek. <laughs> and we'll just try that in the Joker, just for a laugh. <laughs> I apologise for this. <laughs> I don't like this. Morty should have been back by now. I guess the, I'm guessing that Jesus Christ is listening to like hearing what Batman's saying and doing. And then what? Live in your mansion with your collection of boys? Actually, I'm... Okay, just said it one more time with your collection of boys as though it's somewhat suspect. <laughs> okay. It is. <laughs> and then what? Live in your mansion with your collection of boys? <laughs> okay, sorry. <clears throat> Batman doesn't laugh like that. You have to come home. You're doing this weird kind of thing. Yeah. What is that? I do. I do that in recording my lot, like recording extra credits too. I don't know. Oh why. yeah, no. I I have to go all the way back through every single time I go uh and and every every uh, breath. You know, I I am rubbish. Dele- oh, I delete every single breath I take when I'm editing. Cause sped up, it sounds weird. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, if you leave the breaths in there, it sounds like a normal guy's voice pitched up, which it kind of does anyway. But, like, if you take the breaths out, it at least sounds like a voice, for whatever reason. I don't know. But, uh, anyway, here, let me, here, I'll start again. Yes. Again, yes? Yes. One more time? Yes. And again? Yes. Oh, yes! Stop it! <laughs> Oracle and I are worried sick. We all are. <laughs> Come home with me. Gayest line ever. Yeah, I was. I've been trying to like every uh, like every three out of four times I say this line, I come off like, ah, oh, that sounds really yeah. <laughs> and I don't want it now. That's what you were gonna say, right? You don't look. You want me to be the Batman? Tanked it. I could have asked you to a restaurant, but I decided we had to be standing in our suits for you to make this decision. In fact. Oh my. Don't drop this. You sure can pick them. Wow, that's pretty tasteful. <laughs> Stop thinking about your wiener. <laughs> I can't not. Okay. Should we mention the ring? I, t- I don't know, because I've been or avoiding... Or do we want like... it? Yeah, and actually it probably will be funny to have that little double entendre yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. I didn't... I mean, you know, yeah. even if you say, wow, you have a really nice ring, it's, you still can't avoid it. Okay, right. Okay. okay. Um, um, almost there. Almost there.
So I'd like to thank my guests for joining me in the Batcave. Neil Taylor of Gameburst, KDS 2.0, Desert Island Gonzo. Thank you very much. Sharon Shaw of Gonzo Planet. Thank you very much. Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Always a pleasure. And of course, David Hartrick. Uh, we will see you next week for the beginning of our epic five-part Avatar The Last Airbender shows. Now, seriously, don't run away. This is a really, really good animated show, and the first episode we do is going to be spoiler-free and full of reasons why you should start actually watching it. In other words, it's going to be full of Combine Hunter. He is Maybe. leading He's telling ab- you to advocate. watch it or he'll you, kill you. You know what? I actually think I like it more than Combine does. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if that's possible. I think well, no, because uh, Combine said, well, I'm going to watch some of the first series again, but I don't need to watch that one with the two tribes who are going across the Great Divide. I was like, are you kidding? That's one of my favourite episodes. <laughs>